I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Would you like me to save you some serious cash right now? Listen up. You're probably wasting tons of money on vitamins, herbs, supplements, maybe even prescription drugs, trying to improve your sleep, your sense of well-being, happiness, your energy levels. And I'm here to tell you, all you really need to do is probably just get solid REM and deep sleep. Not enough hours per se, but enough of the right types of sleep. And I can also tell you, based on my research and interviews with over 200 experts on this here podcast over the past few years, that if you are not blocking blue light from your life at night, you are not producing enough melatonin to give you the type of sleep that you really need. Enter the company, one of my favorite sponsors, Blue Blocks. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, blueblocks.com. Make some not only attractive and pretty cool looking glasses of the prescription, non-prescription, and even reading glass nature, but you can also get 15% off on their website by entering the code LIFESTYLIST. So their glasses look cool, but they really work to cut out the blue and green spectrum of light that trashes your melatonin, hormones, and neurotransmitters. So if you want to be healthy, listen, stop ordering a couple of those supplements and just work on your lighting. This is really, really important. And I'm very enthusiastic about this because after changing all the lighting in my house to old style incandescent bulbs and wearing protective uh, glasses like this at night when I go out or watch TV or work on a computer, whatever the case may be, um, my health has improved dramatically and so has my energy and my mood. It's serious stuff and it's very affordable and much cheaper than some of the other interventions that you're probably trying right now or some of the medical interventions that are likely to be necessary later on. So go to blueblocks.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST to save 15%. One of the things I've struggled with over the years is keeping on my healthy, clean eating program while I travel. And specifically, that's getting enough greens into my life. So sure, every once in a while on the road, I'll grab a green juice or find a great organic green smoothie somewhere. But I don't always have time to do that and I'm not always staying somewhere where that is readily available. That's one of the reasons that I love Organifi and specifically the Organifi green juice. This is a really easy to travel with powder that mixes so easily in water. You know how some powders like protein powders, you try to mix it up and it's all clumpy and weird. Organifi fix that, okay? So you put like a tablespoon of that in a glass of water, it takes you two seconds to mix it up and you've got yourself a really natural, fresh tasting, super sweet and amazing organic green juice without all of the sugar, no fruit, none of that weird stuff. So it doesn't go bad, it doesn't spoil, it's easy to travel with. I even eat it on the airplane sometimes. I'll just put a packet of that in my water, shake it up and I'm like, ha ha, I have a green juice and y'all don't pretty awesome. So I'd love for you to go over and check it out at Organifi.com forward slash Luke. That's Organifi with an I. Grab yourself some of the little travel packets or even just a tub of the Organifi green juice. It's amazing. That's Organifi.com forward slash Luke. Use the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout and save 20% off your order. This 
This is episode 219 of the Lifestylist Podcast. Man, can you believe that? We're over 200 episodes. We're creeping up on 3 million downloads as we celebrate our third year in existence. And I want to thank you, my regular listeners, for joining me once again. If you're new to the show, welcome. We're going to have a lot of fun in this episode. If you heard last week's show with Ruby Warrington all about alcohol, you're probably curious about some healthy alternatives to drinking. Well, listen up because today is one of those answers, one of those solutions, of course. I'm super excited about this episode for two reasons. One, like many of us, including myself, Cameron has lived through hell and come out the other side to share his healing victory story. And this is an incredible story. This kid's just had some gnarly times and and has found solutions that are natural, and that's what he's going to share. Now, I also love finding alternatives to big pharma's drugs, And Cameron has discovered and perfected the use of something called kava, of which I'm a huge fan. I've been using it for a while, but I don't think probably the right way. And so he clears that up. And it's just a really exciting time we live in. We have access to plants like kava, kratom, cannabis, various types of herbs and mushrooms. Uh, Many of us are finding solutions to the things that ail us without having to rely on drugs and um, some of their side effects. Now, don't get me wrong. If, uh, you know, I get my leg ripped off, please take me to the hospital and have them put it back on and then give me a nice morphine shot. But in the meantime, uh, for the more subtle issues in life, I'd like to try something more safe. So get ready for a really incredible story and what is probably the single most deep dive into the topic of kava to ever appear on a podcast, at least to my knowledge. I mean, we cover this thing in excruciating and hopefully entertaining and interesting detail. Here's the gist of what the convo you're about to eavesdrop on is all about. The root of Cameron's sudden autoimmune and chronic illness, Cameron's proclivity to becoming addicted. Why Cameron ended up going on random buying sprees, including buying exotic animals in an effort to pursue his lifelong dream to recreate Ace Ventura. True story. Shit is a trip. Why taking a drug, even a prescription drug, is a huge and potentially life-altering decision. Everything Cameron tried that didn't work, and trust me, this dude tried everything. The 3,000-year history of kava use in Vanuatu. Why scientists are studying what happens when you give kava to people with cancer and metabolic disorders. The huge misconception about kava that has been perpetuated by the pharmaceutical industry. And finally, the improved method of kava extraction that Cameron helped create so that they could produce full-spectrum kava products. So this is a super dope episode, but before we jump in, I'd like to invite you to join me this Friday for a bonus Q&A solo show where I take questions from the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group and answer them for you. And if you want to ask your questions and possibly have them answered on the show, make sure to join that group. Just open Facebook, search The Lifestylist Podcast, you'll find the group, we'll let you in and we will party. It's a really awesome community of about 4,000 people in there, all supporting each other and of course, supporting the show. Then Tuesday, we're back with our regular programming, biohacking birth, babies, and homeschooling kids with Wellness Mama, aka Katie Wells. Really excited about that one. If you're a mother or father-to-be, you definitely want to subscribe to the show so you don't miss Friday's show or Tuesday with Wellness Mama. And I'm also guessing that by the end of this episode, you're going to be fiending for some kava of your own. So Cameron has offered a special discount to listeners on his rad product. Go to noblerootskava.com. That's noblerootskava.com. Enter the code LUKE20 and save yourself 20% off. This stuff is awesome. I use it just about every day, especially before I record podcasts and I'm a little nervous. 
Okay, let's sit back, chug a big cup of kava tea, get your chill on, and jump into this inspiring story of healing and discovery with Cameron George. Cameron George, what's up, my man? How's it going, man? I'm so stoked to talk to you, dude, because A, I love kava. Is it called kava or kava kava? You know, kava kava is more of a, like a Western name. Screw the West. Right. Yeah, let's exactly. Go, let's go OG indigenous. Okay. <laughs> right. I love kava root. And also, I feel as though I've spent a lot of money, time, and energy thinking that I'm going to get the benefits of kava and then not. And so when we started talking and I'm like, holy shit, this guy has niched down on this one particular plant, like very deeply, I was so excited to talk to you. So for those of you listening, you're like kava or kava kava, what the hell is that? You will soon find out. And trust me, you're going to be very grateful that you did. Having talked to you briefly before the interview, though, you also have a pretty hardcore origin story. You've struggled a lot with your health. So give us a truncated version of what led you to eventually getting really into these medicinal plants and herbs and whatnot. Right. Yeah. You know, just like so many probably of you out there listening, I uh, this whole sort of odyssey for me started with chronic illness. You know, long story short, I was 19 years old and ended up developing a... Devi- a debilitating set of autoimmune symptoms that it was sort of like an, an inflammatory cascade that eventually led me to be totally handicapped. At times I was unable to walk. I was unable to feed myself. I was, you know, developing all kinds of crazy food allergies, nerve system disturbances, eventually started having seemingly random convulsions in my nervous system that eventually led to seizures. And uh, actually you know, became allergic to so many things. I was having violent reactions to foods that would either put me into severe anaphylaxis or into a grandma seizure, right? Dude. Or sometimes both at the same oh time, you know? Oh, my God. Almost, uh, almost unconscionable. I mean, um, I, didn't even, I didn't even believe it while it was happening to me. It's like, you know, how can a seemingly, seemingly healthy 20-year-old who's an athlete in college, you know, an endurance athlete, actually, you know, and, you know, running uh, at university and such and, uh, you know, working three jobs, health just totally collapsed all at once. And it wasn't all at once. There were some signs now, but I didn't know how to recognize those back then, right? You know, so... Um, was anyone able to identify the, the root of where these issues came from at the time? Yeah. You know, like so many, you know, people today who are chronically ill, there's a lot of contributing factors that build up over years time prior. It's like, you know, I, I definitely believe at this point from everything that I understand about chronic illness now and, you know, the development of it that I certainly had genetic susceptibility there. It's like, like most of us do that develop diseases that other people don't, right? So it's like you have certain susceptibilities, I'm sure, and then you get exposed to a myriad of different stressors in your early adult years. And you probably, if you're uh, just a standard young guy, then you have all kinds of toxic habits, you know, when it comes to, you know, dietary choices and uh, drinking and... Uh, Dominoes and yeah. Budweiser and Marlboro exactly. and all those you know? American standard... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> those exactly. dietary standards we keep as, as young people, yeah. some of us. And I was set up, my nervous system was set up in a way that was sort of hyper impulsive. I was one of these types that was sort of prone to addiction and sort of a, you know, self-compensatory strategy type of, uh, you know, 
thing or sequence where um, I would very easily addict to things, right? Whenever I was, you know, very young, it was food or it was a combination of, of different things, whether it be activities or, you know, even ideas at times or thoughts and so on. And, uh, you know, at, at a certain age, you know, whenever I got into, you know, teen years, high school years, early college years, um, it turned into drugs, you know? And I, I would know nothing about that, by the way. <laughs> Having I've listened to the podcast, I've I been a know. complete angel my whole life. Right, I totally yeah. don't relate. No, go on. Who does drugs at 18? Right, why would you ever do that? Yeah, exactly. It's not so, fun. <laughs> but it was to a level of excess that was that was quite self-destructive. I mean, it was it you know things imploded pretty quickly on me at a very young age and ended up in all kinds of uh, trouble. Right, you know, both physically and uh, you know all my, you know, relationships, friendships, family, all that kind of stuff, you know, too. And, you know, so I, at, at a you know, pretty early age, I shifted most of my addictive, you know, propensities towards, uh, you know, athletics and running in, an, in a ditch effort to actually try to do something that was like positive for myself, right? And that actually turned toxic on me because then I ended up overtraining and that was a huge contributing factor on top of all of the damage and, uh, you know, that had accumulated from toxic habits, lifestyle and things, and probably the susceptibilities that were in place. So, you know, with these situations, it's always very difficult to pinpoint one thing, like the one thing. But I do know that there were certain things that definitely sent me over the edge. One of those things, no question about it. Well, first of all, I ended up in a moldy apartment um, while uh. I started to get chronically fatigued and started to deteriorate from just living a very excessive, overly excessive lifestyle. Yeah, I ended up in a, uh, what I later found out was a mold infested apartment where we found stachybotrys and, uh, and such, you know. How did you uh, come to that realization? Because I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm, I know at different points in my life, just based on symptoms and based on where I live, right, that yeah. I've been exposed to mold. But how did you get to the root of that? Because I don't think a lot of people... <laughs> A, understand that's an issue and B, would even know how to effectively test for it and then what do you do to remediate it, et cetera? Well, and, and actually I didn't, I wasn't clued into that at all at that stage in my life. My dad actually knew someone who suggested this because I had uh, a bunch of animals in my apartment and they, they started randomly dying. Oh, uh, what kind of animals yeah, did you so, have? <laughs> so, right. Um, yeah, so I actually had, and there's a reason for this that I'll get to. I ended up with a bunch of exotic animals. So I, uh, I had... A few monkeys. Uh, <laughs> Are you serious? A <laughs> couple dogs. Uh, I had, you know, a uh, few parrots. You or know, these part kind of, of your uh, the manifestations of your obsessive. How do you say that word? Obs- obsessiveness. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, sort of right. the OCD kind of thing, yeah. or the hyperimpulsivity and such. Yeah. Um, it was, but that wasn't like even like normal me at all. Oh, okay. Actually, the main toxic stressor that sent my whole system over the edge was actually the thing that brought about. <laughs> those kind of behaviors like randomly buying animals and such. And that was that when I started to get fatigued from overtraining and all of these other different things. Is having a monkey even legal? You know, I, I <laughs> you know, so I came from Arkansas. I was in Arkansas and okay. I, I, I didn't really, uh, I didn't really go down that road or know or care, but I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm, okay. I'm quite and sure did, it's not. Was one of the animals that died as a result of the mold a poor little monkey? Yes. Oh yeah. God. Unfortunately. <laughs> that's like a giant human-like canary in the coal mine. Exactly. Oh, poor exactly. monkey. God. And that's one reason why I tell the story because it's an important you God know sign their, of like how God rest how, their souls. how toxic mold is and that, yeah. that, that whole thing was a horrible thing and I, I, I hate that that happened but really so it was an expression of what I'm about to tell you there and was you know also being one of the main stressors that sent my nervous system really into a very very um, degenerative situation and that was whenever I started to get fatigued from overtraining and all these different lifestyle factors I ended up 
just like most people would at that age, not, not knowing anything about upkeeping my own health or anything like that. I ended up in a psychiatrist's office in which I was prescribed Adderall. Oh. Um, you know, for my fatigue, actually, and of course, diagnosed with the standard, you know, attention deficit. Oh, that'll fix fatigue, all right. Wheelhouse. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 of course, gives you the illusion, right? If you're a kid and you're like, oh yeah, this did it, right? You know, here you're fatigued. You know, taking what was, so. What was your experience? You know, I'm just painting Adderall as negative because apart from one person that I've met in my life that still takes it and derives a lot of benefit from it, as I was telling you earlier, which is Mastin Kip, a recent guest. Every single person I've ever met that's taken Adderall just it completely wrecked them sure. in one way or another. Sure. What was what was where was that in the journey, and was that the final tipping point, or did it get worse? It was it was the catalyst that made that turned up the it turned up the notch. It amplified all of my pre existing impulsivities that were just relatively you know normal, especially in today's age as far as impulsivities are concerned. And it put them on steroids and basically put me into a, a you know a psychosis and uh, my whole life broke broke down. Relationships, friendships. Thank goodness I was mostly self destructive during that time. It was, I didn't really do anything you know to anybody else or anything like that. But uh, you know that was basically my experience with it. And you know just to be clear with you know with drugs like Adderall, my my you know view of them is always that they're they're a, a tool, you know, just like other, you know, psychiatric drugs, like you can, like a scalpel, you know, you can save someone's life in surgery, you can, you can kill yourself with it. And, uh, you know, some drugs have far less of an application, in my opinion, you know, than others, you know, at, at, you know, as far as like to maintain safety, because, you know, certain drugs go off of this principle, or I'd say most drugs of borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today. And that's sort of like what you're doing, like with an amphetamine, right? It's sort of like an override button for the nervous system, you know, which in the short term, right? It's like, if you need to get some stuff done, or you're a CEO of a company or something like that, you, you take Adderall, or it's, in my opinion, a little bit less, uh, you know, aggressive counterpart modafinil or something like that, you know, then you do get, you know, a lot done, you know, and so people may use it for that and such. But in my case, I wasn't even like thoroughly assessed like at all. I was, <laughs> I was literally just walked into this office and they gave me this, this drug that I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know anything about chemistry or pharmacology or anything like that. And they actually told me, they said these words, they said, this is a miracle drug and sent me out of the office, right? So no blood tests, no, it, like it, it, there was no test besides just like, oh, you're fatigued? Yeah. You know? That's really that interesting kind of because mm -hmm. the, the one person that I mentioned, Mastin Kip, who I didn't know this, but on the show, he told me, yeah, I take Adderall. I was like, whoa, God, you seem happy, healthy, balanced. And he is prescribed it. And it's a, a more mild version of it, if I'm getting the story right. But the important part of the story was he went to Amen clinics and did brain scans and saw how uh, for him, and I'm not an advocate for anything other than what was working for him, but he saw scans of his brain and was able to figure out how Adderall could actually help him stabilize for whatever neurotransmitters. I don't know what the deal was, but that's the, I think that's a clue into why he's one of the only, well, the only person I've personally ever met that has an ongoing use history of Adderall that, and, and he's super stoked and it's working for him and he seems really happy and successful and awesome, but he wasn't shooting in the dark like you. He went to one of the most renowned brain analysis clinics in the world. And they're like, yeah, this is where these molecules fit into your particular system. And here's exactly how much you take, which I think is a pretty low dose. Right. So it was at least targeted. And he, yeah. he, he gathered some information and found out which parts of his brain, you know, were functioning high or functioning low or whatnot. And, and then, you know, saw the results you know, as far as like, like acutely taking it. And I've actually had spec imaging too, like later on, like after a lot of this ensued, but that's, that's actually an interesting, um, 
you know, thing too. Because I, I always had kind of wondered too, whenever we do spect imaging scans, whenever you give a drug, and I don't know, you may know this, like do they do them acutely, like right after giving the drug to see what happens or do, or do they follow up long-term? Yeah, I don't right? know. Because that's the thing. It's like, you're going to get functional changes if you temporarily activate a lot of, uh, you know, systems in your brain that appear good in the short term, just like right. you feel good in the short term, right? Yeah, no, and, and so that's all discussion there, but yeah. they're, they're uh, it's... And this it, is not the Adderall episode. Yeah, no, I just, exactly, yeah. I, I often, you know, much to the shrug, shrug, what's the word? Chagrin of some listeners, they're like, let the guy talk, but there's... There's so many things sometimes that I have to interject on because I'm like, whoa, this is a really interesting side note, which yeah. we didn't plan on talking about. And I feel there's benefit in someone who's thinking about taking Adderall, who has done it, someone who's having yeah. success with it, someone who's not, because it's very prevalent. Yeah, you know, and this is not at all to to paint, you know, any tool with a broad brush and say it's absolutely inherently evil. And I don't think that there is any drug that is like, most likely, maybe there's PCP or something. You know, it's like, you know, it's like but... But, uh, you know, it's, it's not at all to say that. It's only my personal story. And, and I've seen a lot of things. And so, you know, could be a cautionary tale to do a little bit more investigation at very least, right? You know, you like go. whenever you're, you know, you know whenever yeah. you, because, you know, taking a drug is a huge life decision. It can totally alter the course of your life when you talk about getting on a drug, right? That totally alters your brain chemistry, you know? So, so it's a good, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> good, good side point about the whole thing. Absolutely. But anyways, you know, back to the story about like, yeah. how, how that fits in, you know? So, and thank you for being able to meander us back there when I take you on a, a side route. <laughs> oh, yeah. I appreciate no, that. I know you, Sometimes <laughs> the guest is like, wait, where were we? And I go, uh, I forget too. And then yeah. we're screwed. So yeah. take, us, like, take us back into the story. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. No. So, um, yeah. So anyways, so for me in my situation, Adderall was a catalyst in which I was you know, it can be a huge stress in the body because it, it is a sympathetic activating drug, right? You know, like it literally keeps the body in a pseudo sympathetic state, especially if it's unregulated. It's, it's, it's fragile in any way to where it has a hard time regulating itself, right? So if you're sick and maybe you have poor metabolic function and such, you know, putting an override button like jet fuel into a car engine or whatnot, you know, um, you know, could lead to some problems, right? And then, and, you know, in, in my situation, um, it was the thing as where I had already accumulated a lot of factors. We talked about, you know, the toxic mold. And I had a lot of different probably toxic factors that it had accumulated maybe from dysfunctional detox pathways, you know, dysfunctional mitochondria, who knows, you know. But then, you know, the Adderall was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back or the thing that just, not only did it put me into a psychosis, but it, it absolutely did some, some serious damage in, to my nervous system, you know. And objectively, it's just, there's no doubt in my mind in that because it, it, it really took its toll. You know, so whenever I got on it, that brings us to the, um, you know, back to the, the quick point that I wanted to make about, I'm not a lunatic. I didn't just buy a, a bunch of random animals. That was actually part of the psychosis, like uh, amphetamine-induced okay. psychosis is like, I went on random buying sprees and part of that included a bunch of exotic animals, that you know. Is so, uh, you know, you're the first guest that's had that as a manifestation yeah. of some psychological issues. They were it was it was it was me and my psychosis realizing my you know, lifelong dream of of, you know, recreating Ace Ventura uh, pet detective. Holy <laughs> shit, dude. That is Probably. In, that is incredible. Except for my life ended up in a place where it was more like a hodgepodge crossover between Ace Ventura and Breaking Bad. 
I uh, because because of the, uh, the the fest and the you know all the negative circumstances people uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about you know like that that happen once you become a uh, a drug act yeah it led to more drugs and so on and sure, so forth right sure you start hanging around with lower and lower Absolutely. energy people yeah, yeah more and more toxic uh, you know circumstances situations you care less about your physical health and diet whenever you're in that and those things than you even did before and so on. And so it was really just this cascade that like, but the Adderall in and of itself being on it, I was on it for two years straight every day. And I kept getting like weaker and weaker and weaker as I was on it and more psychotic and so on. And you know, long story short, my whole life broke down. I ended up thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands, like, you know, like it had been spent in debt, you know, and had done all this, you know, damage to my life. And whenever I finally came to the realization, which actually happened through through a drug experience, and don't have to go up on that rabbit trail, but uh, you know, I was introduced, uh, you know, inadvertently in the drug world to psilocybin once, and it altered totally altered my perspective on self and my situation with Adderall. And within five hours, I I decided I would never take that drug again. It totally changed the course of my life, you know. Dude, um, I, that is so interesting because it wasn't until years after I had stopped my shenanigans in the drug world that I realized that I decided to stop in the middle of a heavy mushroom trip. Yeah, and it took me years to actually remember. And I had you know a psychedelic flashback, but just was thinking, you know, what instigated that? And I think telling my story, you know, over the years to it, when it was contextually relevant, and it really was the same thing. It was a mushroom trip, and I saw. Oh my God, I am a complete and total loser. <laughs> and my life is about <laughs> to get flushed down the proverbial toilet forever. And yeah. then I came out of the mushrooms and partied hard for another year or so. But that was the glimpse. And I remember telling one buddy, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I got to quit doing drugs. And my friend's like, What's wrong with you? We're having a blast. And I'm like, No, I'm not. This is not fun anymore. So, yeah. So you got the experience of like the seed planting, right? Where exactly. you didn't even realize yeah. at the time, but it open certain doors and yeah. alter the perspective, you know, inadvertently without you realizing it. For me, it was like, it was totally conscious and it was totally like I was, I was totally aware of everything and made that conscious. It was just, it was the most powerful experience of my life. You Have know? you ever done mushrooms before? You know, prior to that, no. Oh, okay. And then I, wow. I, I, I continued, I, I have done, you know, I've, I've, you know, done, you know, many sessions with psychedelics since, you know. Um, I, not in a long time, but there was a period of time where I was intrigued to say the least and, uh, and always did it with intention and always did it in, in a context that I thought was, you know, you know, respectful and set and setting because it, it humbled, it humbled me. Right. And that's, that's classic, you know, psychedelic and theogenic experiences, right. Is that they, they tend to, you know, confront us with the truth about ourselves and allow us to put all of all of the inner cogs and wheels on our mind in the, in the layers of our ego out on the table to where we can see them like a third party, right? And we can just be like, ugh, you know, <laughs> like where it's it's one of those things where it's like you can objectively see things from outside your subjective, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, compromised perspective. And which is why, you know, so many people report that same thing, right? With drug addiction, whether it be an ayahuasca journey or, uh, you know, about with uh, something like DMT or, or psilocybin or any of those things, right? So that was certainly a deal with me. And that actually is, is relevant to our topic too in, in a way that I'll get to. Um, but, uh, but, you know, yeah, so, so I had, I was at this, uh, this point in my life where I had made the decision to stop. And at that point, I wasn't going back to that life because I had, 
I had created so much damage inadvertently, uh, you know, unknowingly that I had to take responsibility for, even though a lot of it, I didn't even really feel like it was me because it was like a different person on the amphetamines and such. Um, but, uh, but I, um, you know, so at that point, I, I, I sort of had to, you know, pick up the pieces of my broken life and I did have a totally different perspective. And once I got off of it, I was left with like this totally broken body. Like, you know, the Adderall was still sort of propping up my nervous system, getting me through the day. But whenever I went off of it, my system completely crashed, you know? Like, you know, I was being held above water by like a floaty, you know, or something. And it let go and I'm just drowning, you Deflated know? Deflated floaty. Because wah, my wah, body, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like my body had been, you know, beat down to a point in its recovery system. It had, had even been beat down to a point to where I wasn't recovering. Like, I thought that it was just like withdrawal from it at first, you know, whenever I went off. And it was like, couldn't get out of bed, couldn't get out of bed, couldn't do anything. And in fact, I was so, I had so many cognitive deficits that um, I couldn't even leave my house because I was forgetting like where I was. I would have these memory lapses. I was not, I was starting to not recognize, you know, faces of people in my family, like my parents, like crazy stuff. And I was explaining to people and no one would believe me. I even went back to my psychiatrist and said like, this has obliterated my nervous system and brain. And they're like, well, that's just your ADHD coming back. Why don't you just go back on it? I'm like, I can't, I can't do that, right? I won't be that person again, first of all. And secondly, um, it created all this damage. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kill myself on this thing, you know. And uh, you know, it was one of those things that eventually I ended up um, in Louisiana at one of the most prestigious hyperbaric clinics. Uh, you know, it, and this was after a long time of sort of diving into to research um, with uh, sort of my newfound perspective on things. Uh, you know, this was like a year or two later of being totally dysfunctional and not able to get out of bed and had having to move back in with my parents and and being in a total state of basically like dementia. I mean, it, it was bad. It was like, you know, it's just that whole period of my life was a blur. And actually a lot of people didn't even believe that I was that bad. They thought that it was some sort of a psychological thing. Um, and there was some psychological damage and trauma too. But uh, I ended up, you know, going to this place to try to get hyperbarics just because I was focusing on things, just go in and, uh, you know, that could help my brain be able to recover because my brain was what I was worried about the most because it was broken. And I ended up getting some spec imaging scans like you referred to earlier. And, um, you know, the radiologist who interpreted the scan, they do a lot of, um, you know, Alzheimer's patients and autism patients and uh, a lot of, you know, like elderly people. And he said that my, my scan, my, you know, spec brain scan, it... Uh, it resembled a lot of his 80 to 85 year old patients with dementia. And at this point, I'm 22 years old. Whoa, you know? dude. And, and that was whenever I actually got, I got the support of people in my family. That was so liberating for me because I got the support of people in my You're family. Like, Look at these pictures. It's like, dude, this <laughs> is what this drugged into my brain. And I'm not, not saying that happens to everybody, but it's like, you know, that was, that was my situation. There's, you know, we, whether or not it was the toxicity or just the Adderall or just the, you know, it, it was, it was all of it. And it was, it was bad, you know? And so that was, that was, you know, a big time too, because I then got validation, you know, um, which I already had internally. But um, so, you know, in that process, I ended up on this sort of long odyssey to try to, because I, I actually did some hyperbarics and got some temporary effects, but um, I didn't, you know, retain much of it because my body was so unhealthy, toxic. I later found out and stuff too, you know? So, you know, basically I, ended up on this long odyssey where I was, even though I was barely able to get around at all, thank God for the support of my family, my mom and dad, who are the best people in the world that I've met ever, <laughs> you know, just absolute godsend. Um, but anyways, I was traveling around with my family 
just exhausting the whole allopathic model first, you know, going to different states, going to different places, you know, inside, outside, um, you know, you know, places in the country. And I, um, you know, obviously exhausted even, I, I wasn't even willing to go back on medications, right? Because I knew where that led and stuff, you know. So I was trying all kinds of different modalities like the hyperbarics or like IVs or a lot of these different things that just like these one things, you know, until eventually I got, I got, um, I had just, you know, literally been diving into just reading medical and scientific literature with the, with the little brain function I had, which was amazing. I was able to do, it was just pure survival mode, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I pulled together enough pieces, you know, from the literature, from other things that people were doing, from health enthusiasts and podcasts, you know, like yours and, and such. It, I mean, it wasn't around back then, but, you know, others podcasts and such. And I, I eventually gained enough of a perspective where I had some ideas, at least of like, if I was going to be able to turn this back, like kind of where to start. And I actually came across, um, a, you know, a doctor who's, you know, one of my dear friends today and we do work together and his name is uh dr dan pompa he's been on your podcast before oh yeah, too. yeah great guy yeah he's an amazing guy and uh he not only inspired me that i actually could get through it and such but uh you know he offered me some context and you know some protocols and he deals a lot in a system he calls true cellular detox right and then a lot of that i had to deal with a lot of the interference you know you know to get that out of my body in a in a systematic way you know, that wasn't going to make me even sicker and such. And, uh, and that was years of doing that kind of thing. And I went down that road and then I followed that up with, you know, after the, you know, you know, getting out some of the bad, out with the bad kind of thing, the interference, a lot of regenerative medicine techniques and did stem cells things like that. You know, stuff that you've talked about before. I even got some from Harry Adelson who you've had on the show too before, or I've, you know, you know, did some stuff there with, uh, well, that was, you know, you know, peripheral stuff, but then there's, uh, I got some, you know, multiple places. So there was a lot of things. It was a hodgepodge, multi-therapeutic approach that really got me well. But, you know, kind of back to, you know, where I was at my sickest, like right at the point, like right at the point where I met, uh, you know, Dr. Pompa and such, and we were doing some work together. I was in my absolute worst. I had developed, I had deteriorated to a point where I was having these massive convulsions as a byproduct of, you know, you know, like I had mentioned before, you know, these crazy allergies that I was having like to foods that, that I developed, which just happens when your immune system is so broken and your gut is so leaky and, you know, your system is so inflamed that it starts developing these defense responses. And, uh, you know, we call a lot of this when people like react to so, so many things violently. It's, it's sometimes referred to, it's like a, a syndrome. People put you in this category, environmental illness, Right. Um, or, you know, Gulf War syndrome, which a lot of people out of the Gulf War into this because of trauma and toxicity and such, or, um, you know, multiple chemical sensitivity, except for included other things like, like food sensitivities too. You know, and basically the, the thought process behind that whole thing is that, uh, you know, if your body's a metaphorical bucket and every toxic stress or physical, chemical or emotional starts to fill up the bucket, once it gets to the top overflows, you start expressing the symptoms of your genetic weakness. And, you know, one of those for me is you, you develop these crazy sensitivities to everything because your system is so overburdened, right? And chemical toxicity was a huge portion for me, you know? Because at that point, metabolically, I was so broken. My own detox pathways just from, from the average everyday process of, uh, you know, making energy and excreting the waste wasn't even working very well. And so, 
I was sort of just getting more and more toxic and sick, you know, along with everything else. But anyways, you know, so, you know, you know, once I started to address some of those things, this was very slow. There was no magic bullet here. It was a multitude of different things and working a system for detox and also doing things like challenging my body through fasting, you know, to get, you know, the clearing out of a lot of these old damaged bad cells and uh, going into ketosis for periods of time, coming out, adapting, trying to fine tune things, targeted supplements and such. But the problem was, is I couldn't really do any of that at one point around the time that I actually met Dr. Pompa because my reactions were so bad that I couldn't tolerate anything, right? And I was having them so often that I was deteriorating so rapidly. And at this point, I had actually been uh, for a couple of years on a heavy dose of benzodiazepines uh, just to stop the seizures, uh, you know, and the, uh, and the convulsions, which weren't even totally working. And I was are deteriorating. Are benzos uh, like uh, Valium yes. and... Uh, Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, oh, okay. those oh, kind of drugs. Clonopin's one too. Yes, I didn't yes, realize that. Yeah. I thought it was like a painkiller or these, something. These sort of inhibitory drugs that are given uh, to shut down anxiety and that they're, they're, you know, they're narcotic drugs and they're, you know, even, you know, standard psychiatrists, they're, they're very hesitant to give them out because uh, we hear a lot about the opiate epidemic, uh, which is valid. Absolutely. Uh, there's also an epidemic of benzodiazepine addiction, yeah. right? And Dr. alcohol. Dr. Drew talks a lot about uh, mm-hmm. the benzos. Absolutely. You know, and uh, the, his, there, his clinical experience of working with people, especially people in recovery and stuff that get prescribed those um, too often and, and, uh, and, and, and too many, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're one of those drugs that you can literally die from the withdrawal process because you can go into seizures. So if you take them and eventually they stop working like most drugs do, because the body says we got too much of this, starts to shut down and downregulate its production of uh, certain chemicals that are creating the inhibition, that eventually you can get to a point where you start to get a blowback. The drug stops working, you reach your maximum dose, and then you try to go off of it, and you were having seizures before, but now you're having like a lethal seizure, you know? Like it's to a point. And so it's a very, very scary place to be. So I was in this situation where I had to find a way to modulate my nervous system while I was working upstream at the cellular level, right? Because that takes time. There's no, there's no like turning around a chronic situation like that in a day. So I needed to find leverage, but I was trying to look for something that could offer me some support. And I actually didn't expect to find anything that would give me equal support or even anywhere close, but I was desperate. So I was looking anyways. And having had past experiences with psychedelics and things like that, that opened me up to the power of plant medicine and even what I would see as like a plant intelligence and such and the complexity there and uh, how amazing plant medicine can be. I was willing to give it a try, you know, uh, and, and to sort of look for something. I went down the medical cannabis route. Of course, I exhausted that as anybody would. Didn't help. THC made things worse for me and CBD just anxiety, wasn't enough. Anxiety exactly. and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. CBD just wasn't enough by itself. And, and actually those things work for a great number of people, right? You know, so it's, it's, it's good. But, you know, in my situation, it wasn't working and benzodiazepines were. So I was trying to find a plant-based analog to a benzodiazepine means something that, uh, that worked in a similar way. Here's the where the story receptors. comes together, my exactly, friend. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's starting to converge. Uh, starting like to make this. sense. Yeah, this exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I was looking for a plant-based analog that bound to the same receptors. So in this case, with the benzodiazepine, that was working for me, at least temporarily. When you say the benzos were working for you, and I'm calling them benzos because the other word's too long to pronounce uh, and I can never remember it. But um, when you say they're working, was it to calm your nervous system, to lower anxiety, right. the seizures? So it, Right, right, right. Sorry. So, okay. so all of the above. So, okay. so benzos are in a, a, a class of drugs called anticonvulsants. 
Okay. Right? But they're also used for anti-anxiety because basically they inhibit the cells. They shut down the cells through a pathway that I'm sure you're familiar with. It's called GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid, sure. which is which is basically the main calming chemical of the nervous system, right? Right. If, if right. glutamate is the most excitatory, the drive seizures and these kind of things and excitotoxicity that can be exuded from toxins and uh, all kinds of things, heavy metals and uh, brain injuries. You get this storm in your brain that's glutamate driven. You know, GABA is like its equal opposite. Is that why monosodium glutamate jacks you up so much? Exactly, yeah. That's MSG? actually where the research is going because it's a form of glutamate that induces excitotoxic Wow, I never made that connection. Damage. Yeah. That's trippy. So it excites the neurons basically and creates a, a burning out you know, effect. Right. You know, glutamate is the most prominent neurotransmitter in the nervous system in the brain, but it's it's very carefully regulated and it relies on a homeostatic balance of all the chemicals to keep it in check and the intelligence regulates that, right? You know, so the thing is, is that if you do anything and it gets out of balance, then it can overexcite the cells and produce a lot of free radicals in this, in this free radical generation cascade as a result and damage itself, Right. And, you know, which is called excitotoxicity, right? And that's the mechanism through which people, like they have a brain injury and they start this storm, excitotoxic storm, or they get hit by, um, you know, too much mercury, have susceptible, you know, susceptibility to, you know, you know to certain things that contain mercury um, and such. It can, it, it can start this cascade that can just persist and it like plays. immunization shots? Yes, for exactly. Example. Yeah. I was waiting on you maybe <laughs> I, to say I it. I don't you say know? the B word, you know, I got to be careful exactly. with the B word in today's climate. But oh, yeah, no, that's... exactly. It's no, exactly. Issue, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. To people who are susceptible and such, you know, for, um, you know, for sure, that's one of the proposed mechanisms there, right? Is that um, excitotoxicity. Um, and, and that's what happens when someone is in an autoimmune situation and they all of a sudden have these seizures. It starts with the immune system, drives up the nervous system because they're very closely, you know, intertwined, activates this whole excitotoxic cascade. And the body essentially damages itself with friendly fire. And that's like what seizures are. It's like a lot of people on the autism spectrum where we now think and, uh, you know, you know, so many physicians are, are now saying that it's, it's autoimmune in most of these cases, right? Um, and it's a bunch of contributing factors like with the whole autism thing. And, you know, the thing with that is, is that, uh, you know, you have an autoimmune situation, the immune system gets primed. And then a lot of these autistic cases, seizures are involved eventually, right? The immune system gets primed and the nerve system gets primed. This whole system gets out of whack and you end up in this excitatory storm where the nervous system can't re-regulate itself or the immune system too. And that was kind of the situation, that was the situation I was in. I was in a wheelhouse of that kind of thing, you know. But anyways, you know, getting so back if the, to... If the, yeah. if the benzodiazepines... Did I get it right? Yeah, yeah. If the benzodiazepines, now I'll remember in the future. Thank you for the lesson. Uh, if they were quote unquote working... What side effects made you want to find a plant-based alternative? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you know the you know, the situation that I was talking about with like after I had had a perspective change, it made me very, very much aware of what um, you know psychotropic drugs like the Adderall and in this case the benzodiazepines. What I was sacrificing by being on those drugs, whole portions of my personality, right, in order to get those effects. But also, I was deteriorating because I was getting tolerance rapidly to them, which is something that you can get with benzodiazepines. And eventually, it was going to, I was having to increase my dose, increase my dose, increase my dose. Got it. Got and I was okay. getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I was getting memory loss and these things because benzodiazepines, and this is something that, you know, many, many doctors, physicians, scientists agree upon is that the, there's, they can be quite toxic 
to the brain and you can end up with short-term memory. And to a brain where I already was in a situation where I was like confused and like, you know, dementia at age 21, I, that was something that I was experiencing and it was just like, and they were only going to work for a period of time because they were losing their effectiveness. Right. So I had a window of time to try to find something. I forgot know. about the memory factor. I remember, you know, <laughs> I was never a huge, no pun intended. I was yeah. not a huge fan of uh, pharmaceutical pills when I was using drugs recreationally in my past life. Um, but at times if I was desperate, I would take Valiums, like the 10 milligram blue Valiums. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was looking for more of a painkiller, anesthesia, opiate kind of effect. And they really don't have that, but they do get you kind of high in a downer kind of way. And Mm -hmm. so I used to, sometimes I would chew up a few of those and hold them under my tongue and I would hang upside down and do like a sublingual heavy Valium dose all at once. And none of my friends would use that method. They would just be normal and drink a beer and take a couple of Valium to get high. But I was really looking to knock myself out because I was in so much emotional pain anyway. I I digress. But one of the things about it is I just remembered this again, no pun intended, is that my buddies and I, uh, my drug buddies, we used to call them brain erasers. Because if everyone took a bunch of Valiums the next day, literally no one remembered anything that happened. You know, who drove? You drove? That's terrifying. I mean, it was like I would end up in the weirdest places. I'd have no idea how I got there. Wake up in a random apartment somewhere. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, half across town. And then the next day, anyone that wasn't taking the brain erasers would be like, "Uh, you guys were real weird. We went to all these different places and did this or that. And I would have literally zero recollection. That's what I always thought was so funny too about is weird uh, about benzos like you know uh, whenever i was in that world you know in the drug world and, and things where you know that was my reality too right it's just like everyone i was around it's you know you know addicts of, you know you have different types but i always thought that that was humorous because i never was big on that i ended up on benzos like whenever i was you know really sick to stop those things but i always thought it was funny that people would take them recreationally because part of the reason why you go out and do things is like to remember and recall it right and like no one would know what the hell happened the night before at all. And whenever I did, even like a few times, every time that I took a benzo, I'd end up with like a DWI, you know, like, right. without exception, you yeah. know. And yeah, it's, uh, it's weird stuff. Yeah, it's exactly. Stuff. Yeah. And and that was, uh, yeah. And, and then I was forced to get on them later on. And so I already had a very like, ugh, you know, like, and so I was forced to get on. And I was deteriorating much more rapidly even though I was somewhat keeping the convulsions under control, I was deteriorating pretty fast. And I knew that once those things lost their effectiveness, then my 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 system was going to ricochet in the opposite direction. The seizures were going to be worse than ever, and they would be. Too, they were already to a point where they they could have killed me. You know, they were. It was, it was, it was bad. bad so stuff. at this point, you try the medical, the cannabis, the CBD, mm-hmm. not happening. What did you discover next? Well, exactly, you know, and so this had led me into looking at compounds that affect those same receptors. Since I knew that that at least worked temporarily, but wasn't an option for me long term, I was looking, you know, and I had obviously heard of kava before, right? You know, there's all the, you know, the standard ones, you know, chamomile, valerian, passionflower, lemon balm, all these things actually affect those receptors, but they're extremely mild. And any of those things, of course, I did try them, right? It's like, and tried them in all different preparations and so on. But, you know, most of these things, you know, um, were a little bit like trying to take down an elephant with a BB gun, 
right? It was it, it wasn't happening, right? It was it was like you know they're good, and actually I love those herbs to today with, with, with for mild issues, but it wasn't happening. I needed something way stronger, and I didn't know if I was going to find that in the plant kingdom, but I was willing to look. And obviously, whenever you start reading about anticonvulsants or things that affect those receptors or anti-anxiety plants, you're going to come across kava at some point, at least in articles or videos, or someone's going to say it. And actually, during I had actually tried kava before, and whenever I came across it again, I was like, you know, I've tried this. It's just in that same sort of wheelhouse of... Uh, of it's it's not much much better than chamomile. It gives effects that are basically the same, you know, and it's not going to do what I what I you know thought. But you know, you know, something told me to really to you know sort of look into it further because I started reading too on uh, you know whenever I was talking to people who I had met at that point and know and trusted and you know you know a few of them were like, well, I think there's a, a lot more maybe to kava than you think, uh, and actually started straight up just contacting people like in the islands, the origin. I was just trying to go straight to the source. Like, look, I want to know the farmer who's growing this stuff and, you know, how they've used it and if there are any differences there. And uh, I ended up with, you know, a whole host of different kava materials that I w- had gotten from random people that I, that I you know, contacted and, um, um, you know, started to develop some, you know, you know, rapport with talking about kava. And they were all saying the same thing. They were, they were laughing whenever I said I had tried kava. They said, no, you haven't. You know, <laughs> like, like, no, you haven't. You know, you've tried kava kava, that, that name that they give to a capsule that you find in the health food store, which is actually a, a, a small shade of what kava really has to offer and doesn't actually contain the depth of it. So obviously i gave a lot of these things a try. But what, what everyone was telling me too, and what I eventually found out was that in order to get the full effects of, of kava and these effects that are written about and um, you know, that, that the indigenous peoples of the South Pacific islands, uh, islands like Fiji and Vanuatu and Hawaii um, have prized them, has prized kava so highly for, which they have, do you know how far the history goes back? A recorded yeah. history use, at least. Right, exactly. So you know, kava was um, as 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 far as we know. We know that it goes back at least three thousand years of use in, in Vanuatu. So in Vanuatu, we think where was the is, origin of where, where it was is discovered. Vanuatu, I've never heard Vanuatu of. Vanuatu is right off of Fiji. Oh, okay. It's, it's over there in the South Pacific, cluster it. of islands. It's over there. Okay. And Vanuatu is actually seen as sort of the home of kava for that reason, because it has the longest recorded usage of kava. Um, indigenously and in multiple contexts. And it's such, it is a staple of their culture in, in, in Vanuatu. I mean, it is like they drink it for spiritual ceremonies, for social gatherings, for weddings, uh, you know, possibly even funerals. They, they drink it in most contexts, like we would drink coffee over here. Um, and they, it is something that is highly prized by them. And, and that's when I started, you know, talking to some of these people, I was like, this capsule that I got from the health food store, you, this is what all the fuss is about. There's gotta be something more here investigating plants before and having taken really powerful plants like we talked about before, I, I, I just felt sort of intuitively that there had to be because I know that uh, you know, cultures don't highly prize something like this unless it offers more than that, you know? A little bit more than that, at least yeah, to the level that they do. You don't have like the chamomile <laughs> cultures. Yeah, you know what exactly. I'm saying? Like, or chamomile, you know, chamomile, <laughs> you know, like, you know, 
it's not bars the, or yeah, something. You it's know? not the staple of you know entire religious sect ceremonies or anything like that. Exactly. So, yeah, and that's, that's and the effects when I was writing into reading in some of the anthropological accounts and talking to people in the islands and such, they were all saying, "Oh yes, it's it it carries these effects like alcohol, but without the drunkenness. It's this huge social enhancer. It it really helps you focus. It clears the mind. It it's it's a pseudo entheogen." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? Like I, I you know I, I I was taking these capsules. It's like, dude, no, I didn't get any of that." And I was like taking half a bottle of this stuff just to try to like get any of those effects. Had you, you know? ever tried boiling the, you know, the whole root? Right. Well, that's what tea. I, yeah, that's what I, you know, eventually was sort of told to do is to experiment with the dry root. Cause basically, you know, the form that kava, you know, sorry if I haven't, you know, explained it so far, obviously, is that it, traditional kava, well, all these effects that I just, you know, touched on there and these amazing, you know, effects that the indigenous people have prized it for all come from a drink preparation. So kava is um, a drink made from the roots of this shrub, uh, Piper methysticum. So it's actually a, a small shrub in the pepper family. So Piper methysticum actually means intoxicating pepper, you know? And uh, it, it was one of those things that, uh, yeah, you know, so it's it's a drink that's, that's prepared from that. And how it was traditionally prepared actually was, uh, you know, you would have the indigenous villages, you know, hundreds of years ago, even, you know, thousands or whatnot. And they would have kava at the end of their day, every single day. And they would, they would, you know, appoint one person, normally a, a, you know, a young person in the, in the tribe or whatnot that would actually sit and they would have the kava root and they would chew it to release the kava lactones. And then they would spit into a large bowl of water and they would chew it and then spit and then chew it and then spit until they got to you know, the therapeutic amounts. Oh, damn. And then all of the elders would drink from that, like, right? Uh, that was the health thing. Health codes, hello. Oh, yeah, exactly. And You're getting a D at that kava bar. So so even today, even the indigenous cultures don't do that anymore. Right, that was right. like ancient times kind of things. Because right. they figured out pretty quick that you had to release the kava lactone. The kava lactones are the active constituents in kava. And, you know, these kava lactones are, are lipid-like compounds. It's a full complex of active constituents, right? A, a living complex of different synergistic constituents that together interface with your body and create these amazing effects, just like cannabis. It's a full complex of cannabinoids and terpenes and all these different things, supportive constituents. It's not just one linear constituent with one linear mechanism, which right. is where which the is intelligence the, Which comes. is the difference between a whole plant extract mm -hmm. and a pharmaceutical. Yeah, that's where the intelligence is. It's like right. your body is also a complex system. And whenever you take in a complex system from, guess what, your natural environment, right? That's part, that's part of nature, which you are a part too, right? Makes sense, right? That, uh, that it has the ability in, in many cases to interface with your living system in a way that's biologically compatible, that the system doesn't say, whoa, and start shutting down systems and down-regulating it, which is the, the, uh, the phenomenon that causes... Uh, you know, tolerance and, um, you know, addiction withdrawal and so on. Also the phenomenon that not only causes imbalances physiologically, but imbalances of power when you look at pharmaceutical patents, right? Absolutely. And yeah. they, they take white willow bark and there's something in there that works for pain and then they make aspirin out of it. Yeah. And now aspirin, Bayer owns this thing and now they control it. It's always trying to extract the drug, the one compound. And that's right. sort of that's sort of the whole Western you know, view that, uh, you know, so many of us now, and even in science, we're, we're starting to realize and have been for a while that uh, that's a mistake, right? Of looking for the thing, the drug that we can take out, isolate, synthesize, and patent, right? Which is basically ripping off nature, right? And then like trying to, you know, own something, right? And um, 
uh, you know, and w- when you do that, it's not a living system anymore. Now you've taken it out of its living context and it doesn't behave the same way at all because it, 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 was, in a, it was in a complex, a synergistic complex of a bunch of other living constituents that kept its action in check, right? Like it may have other constituents that keep it from driving this action too much in the body or that action too much, right? And so this is why most, you know, medicinal herbs and plants, even the ones that are are not so tonic that you can't use all the time that can sort of knock you off your center. Uh, you, you know, you know, cannabis can be in that in that wheelhouse a little bit, but it's nowhere near the type of consequences. Not even the same ballpark of synthetic opiates, right? Or you know, synthetic drugs really of any kind. And that's something that pretty much everybody agrees upon, right? It's like the cannabis is not. It's like yeah, you know, like maybe it can knock you off your center, you know, if you're on it too much, but. Uh, you know, no one is dying from cannabis withdrawal, right? No one's crawling out of their skin, punching themselves. I mean, there may be, you know, someone, but, uh, you know, emotional perspective or whatnot, but that's generally not the case. When I used to not have weed, I would have temper tantrums, but right. that's about as bad as it Right, exactly, yeah. You're not like actually sitting there convulsing, you right. know, and foaming at the mouth and, right. you know, these kind of things, Which, right? You know, it's interesting about withdrawal. Uh, I observed at one point in life, uh, multiple people going through withdrawals over the course of a couple of weeks. And the worst withdrawal I've ever personally witnessed was from just alcohol alone. Oh, Con- yeah. Convulsions, yeah. paramedics, absolutely, Absolutely. It's crazy. Just like benzos, it's one of those that you can absolutely die from Isn't that crazy? the withdrawal. Yeah. yeah. And it's amazing, right? Of, it's the I most... think a lot of people that haven't, you know, that are fortunate enough not to have had that experience yeah. or been around that kind of thing don't realize, man, alcohol is hardcore. Yeah. It's a hardcore drug. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. One of the coolest things about my job as the host of the Lifestylist podcast is always being on the cutting edge and not only finding out the best products when it comes to health, but the best companies that are making those products. Now, I'm someone that's been into bee products for a really long time. And if you heard episode 175 with Carly Stein, you got to hear me totally geek out on my obsession with bees and bee products. If you haven't heard that one, by the way, go back and check it out. That's 175. But what I didn't know about bee products is A, how many different products bees actually make in a hive, what their different uses are in terms of health support, and also that there are just a lot of companies that are making products that are very inferior. Either they're weak or they're not tested for pesticides and things like that. So the whole like bee product game, I thought I was pretty on top of and I got schooled in that episode and now I'm going back and kind of re-educating myself and I'm using all of the products from Beekeepers Naturals. So they've got a few that I'm really into. There's the propolis, which is kind of like the medicine of the hive. Then you've got, of course, the bee pollen, which is the food, that's the protein. It's actually the highest protein food on the planet. And it's also got free-forming amino acids. So it's great for pre-workout, for muscle recovery. And then, of course, the raw honey, which is amazing. And I thought I knew something about honey. It's got live enzymes. You know, if you take a little bit before you go to bed, it helps you sleep. There's some things like that. But it turns out honey is a legit superfood if you get it from the right company. It's full of antioxidants and it's just insanely powerful. Then you've got royal jelly. Now, royal jelly is the chronic stuff. That's the food that's exclusively made for the queen bee. So the queen bee lives about 40 times longer than the average worker bee. So put the math together there and you'll know that royal jelly is some badass stuff. 
And if you want to try all of these products that the bees make in one, I'm going to recommend Bee Powered by Beekeepers Naturals. That's one of my favorites now. Honestly, I go through it a little too fast. It comes in a jar and I just like pound that stuff. I probably weigh OD on it. You don't need to do it like I do it. You can savor it and make it last. That's an amazing product and a really great way for you to get an introduction into all of the bee products in one jar. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com, use the code lifestylist and save 15%. That's beekeepersnaturals.com and the code is lifestylist. And now back to the interview. You know, alcohol, benzodiazepines, opiates, those are the ones that are just generally known as like the withdrawals being so bad that, that uh, they can literally kill you. You know, stimulants, you crash and you're going through hell, right? If you're going through cocaine withdrawal or, or amphetamine withdrawal, and, and that's bad in its own way, but it's, it's a little bit, you know, different as far as like the lethality of it, you know? So, yeah, you know, you know, so with plant medicine, right? So, we, you know, we talked about the, the complexity there and some of the differences. And so, you know, the cavalactones, like I was saying, is a, is a full complex of, of constituents. So the indigenous people would make this drink and how they, they make it even today is they'll put it in, in like, a, you know, some sort of a strainer bag or like a coconut like cloth, you know, and they'll still have the bowl of water but they'll take it and they'll put some of the ground dry root in the bag and they'll put it down the water and they'll knead it and squeeze it out and wring it out like a towel and then they'll dip it back and squeeze it out. And that pressure and that constant sort of maceration will you know, release this oily complex undamaged into the cold water, right? So you're not using heat or anything like that. Um, and then you have that full lactone complex and it rises to the surface and it's like shiny, like it's like an oily complex that sort oh, of comes really? to the surface. So it's oh, really wow. a suspension, right? Like the cavalactones aren't water soluble, but it's They're a- They're not. Yeah, it's a oh, suspension. Oh, interesting. But we think that there are other water soluble supportive constituents that that are there in that mix too, you know, uh, you know in, the, in the batch and stuff. But yeah, so the, you know, so you get the full lactone complex and then whenever you drink it, and the indigenous people, you know, know this, they know that that's real kava and that's where you get these amazing effects. You actually get the best effects if you can get it fresh, if you can like get a fresh kava because all the enzymes are there. It hasn't been dried through any other method or anything like that, you know, and then, then you get, uh, uh, you know, effects that can be quite profound actually, <laughs> that everybody is going to write home about that one. But um, yeah, so, you know, the, the traditional prep is that drink. You know, and so I started experimenting with these things and having some of these suppliers. And I'm someone who's pretty resourceful, and became even Clearly. more so. Right? You know, you know, became even more so because it's it's easy to become resourceful whenever you're 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 fighting for your life, right? You know, it's like you know, and I was already kind of that way, but I was in absolute desperation mode. You know, so yeah, you know, so so anyways, as I was. Um, you know, sort of vetting out supply for these things. And I was getting a lot of different kava materials, you know, which came in the form of bags. They were like bags of this ground root powder. And then the, I'm familiar. They, they taught me, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and a lot of people who, who go into this niche, who don't just buy the capsule off the shelf have tried this, you know. This well, sort of I method. did that because I would take, the, like I've looked up some of the data and it, it has effects, positive effects, calms you down, good for sleep and mm-hmm. anxiety and all the stuff that you described. But I take those three little stupid pills from Whole Foods. <laughs> and I'm like, this does nothing. And you're like, I need more. Yeah, so cool. then I would take a couple cups of the raw, you know, or not raw, but the, I guess, powdered root, right? And then make a tea out of that. And it would yeah. make my whole head numb. And I thought, well, this is doing something. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so you do get something, even if it's not the best quality kava, it's still way better than what you get out of those capsules for a lot of reasons I'll explain. But there's, 
there's um yeah, you know, so so I was experimenting with a lot of different uh, root materials, different strains, you know, cultivars, um, you know, just different types, which I didn't even know heads or tails at the time, which ones, but I was learning this process of the different strains, where they came from and such. How from, many from different, different strains are there that are known? Uh, there's there's over a hundred, uh, oh, you know, wow. for sure. And even of the non, you know, uh, so desirable ones, even more than that, you know. So there's there's a lot, a lot of different strains and there's... You know, yeah. So I was I was trying strain after strain after strain, literally dozens and dozens of different strains. And what I noticed right off the bat was, okay, this is definitely something, you know, like there's something here. But, you know, the other thing about kava is that um, it elicits something that the indigenous people and, you know, just kava drinkers in general call reverse tolerance. And uh, this goes down to the unique pharmacology of kava, right? Of plant medicine, which you don't get from a pharmaceutical like this, is that... You know how whenever you take a drug, you get the most prominent effect the first time you take it, and then it goes down from there because tolerance ensues, right? And it's never like that first time. Well, kava is really just the opposite. Like the first time is usually the weakest like kava will ever feel, you know, when you're taking this real kava or, you know, in, in its traditional context, taking it over two weeks, the effects intensify even more and it sort of integrates its way in your system and it sort of builds up. And then taking it over a month and especially like two months, like that's whenever you know where it's, you know, that you're at the peak of what it's going to do for you until it eventually like, you know, levels off. And it's actually kind of funny because in the scientific community, like this is always known about kava, um, but it wasn't until, it's always been hypothesized that there was, um, and it's, it's been looked at and such. And, um, but it was always hypothesized that there was some, some GABA receptor upregulation going on, uh, you know, from that, because the more you took it over time, the less you even needed to get the same effects. That right, is you know, so weird. It is right. It's yeah. because of that complexity in the ways that we don't even understand exactly, like how it's interfering. But it's it's doing something we believe that's modulating the receptors through this complex set of array of of uh, of of cavalactones, binding to the receptors and modulating them in such a way where it's sort of waking up the parasympathetic nervous system and uh, you know supporting its rehabilitation. That is right? so dope. So, God, I love plants. Plants are so yeah, cool. Exactly. So we've, wow. we've you know seen some things and you know uh, there's been a lot of, of stuff increasing GABA receptor density and such, you know, and that's uh, over long periods of time or that's um, been proposed and so on. But uh, you know, so that's just something that the cover users know and I figured out really, really quick from direct experience was like I started taking it and it just totally blew the lid off of my expectations. Like honestly, like I was not expecting to get something like this from a plant outside of maybe cannabis or psychedelic, like that level of power. And it was that perfect level because I didn't want something like cannabis or psychedelics that I was taking every day, right? And yeah. <laughs> I needed to be, Ayahuasca is not exactly a tonic uh, yeah. herb. <laughs> not, not, not exactly one of those that you, daily use. You might end up... Um, <laughs> Maybe not even yearly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You may, you may end up, um, you know, a little off the ground, you know, yeah. just to say the least. You know, but anyways, as I started to build it up, it was like after, after, you know, taking some of these really good strains of kava like once, I'm like, okay, yeah, there's something there. After two weeks, I'm like, oh, yeah, I really like this. And after a month, month and a half, I love this stuff. Like, I love this stuff because it was helping me so much in my my situation, you know. And within a very short amount of time, literally like four months, it was completely off of, you know, of regular use of benzos, you know. 
Nice. All, you know, being off of benzos after being on them for that period of time, being so hopelessly completely dependent on them, that was so powerful because everybody knows who's been through benzo withdrawal. It is one of the hardest drugs to get off of. So you were still taking the benzos while you started to integrate the more refined, yes, yes. And, and, and I specific was. use yes, of kava because I couldn't go off the benzos. I had to layer in the kava. Yeah. And get this sort of whatever is going on here, this upregulation and this, this, you know, and get to where I actually was comfortable and then a slow taper off the benzos after that. That was my particular strategy. I'm not, nice. I'm not telling anybody else, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, you know, to do exactly what I did. Legal or, disclaimer. The yeah. Lifestyles <laughs> podcast does neither condone or endorse yeah. the use. Of them. Yeah. <laughs> I probably have to make one yeah, of those exactly. at some point because I get so excited. I'm like, everyone do this. I know, exactly. Wait, wait, can you it's do that? It's not meant to treat, prevent, cure any, yeah, any all those go. things. Yeah. 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 I mean, for sure, because it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that doing anything you want to be working with a, a professional, you know, and a, you know, physician and whatnot, who knows what they're doing, you know? Maybe hard to find, but yeah, you know, and so that was my experience with it. And I was just totally blown away by the effects. And not to mention on top of that, because of the state that my brain was in, I, I also was getting all of these side benefits. Like, you know, like the benzos would actually muddle my brain chemistry, even though they were helping and they would, um, they would obviously the memory loss and things we talked about before and were making me, I was feeling dumber and dumber as things, as time was going on. And I got this amazing nootropic effect as I started to build up therapeutic levels of, of this real kava in my system. And certain strains more than others. Because some strains, you know, kind of like cannabis, if people have been into that world and, and of medical cannabis or whatnot, there are some strains that are more nighttime strains that are more like immediately you know, sedative. And there are some strains that are more daytime strains um, that are more like nootropic and mood lifting and such. All, all of kava reduces anxiety, but those ones that are daytime elicit more of like a calm focus, but not sedation. Oh, interesting. So it, it, you know, for me, I use different strains at different times and I was getting like this perfect nootropic effect to turn my brain on whenever it wasn't working. And more than anything, and I had experimented with every possible nootropic and stacks and all kinds of other things. And I still love a lot of nootropics and a lot of nootropic stacks out there and, and stacking different things and cycling different things and such. But I, I don't know if I've come across anything that helped me as much from a nootropic standpoint as kava. And that was not something I was expecting. I've at never all. heard that either. I, yeah, it's something that's starting to be written about by certain select people. And it's because most people are trying the, the capsules, right? Yeah. The effects are totally gone out of the capsules. Or getting, yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to shoot my supplier in the foot, but I have ordered my kava root from a, what I think is a pretty reputable uh, company. And when I mentioned it to you, you were like, yeah, I know the strain they use and it's whack. I'm like, I mean, it does something, but it doesn't do what you're describing. I definitely didn't have any like cognitive benefit. I think it yeah. helped me with sleep a little bit here and there, but yeah. not... I would never consider it like in my mainstay wheelhouse. Yeah. Of like this is my go-to for anxiety or sleep. Or, and a lot of times it's just like, like medical cannabis. It's like dialing it in the right strain that really gels with you. One may not so much and one may be perfect, but but you know, most of it is the quality of the kava, how it was grown, how long it was grown, and then certainly how it was extracted and if it was, and if it was extracted and how it was then stored and stabilized and so on. Um, you know, and then you know, the dosages and everything like that too. Um, you know, so I, I got all these amazing side benefits from it. And it was like one of those things where I just became like obsessed with it, clearly, you know, because it helped me so much. And around this time, I, I so it allowed me to basically start tolerating 
a lot of things that were aggressive that needed to be done like detox. And that sort of brings us back to that whole thing, you know, of like, I started to be able to implement other supplements, you know, without, uh, without, you know, being able to tolerate foods, be able to tolerate deeper nutrition, be able to tolerate different therapies, treatments, modalities that would, that I would react to badly before. It was that leverage over my system. But it was, it, it sort of like was a safe crutch, right? It's like I needed a crutch for a period of time. It was like a safe crutch that was also appeared to be contributing to my healing process too. So it's like, it wasn't the one thing, but it was an amazing tool for me. And, uh, you know, so I, I was actually able to integrate a lot of these other things and I, I was actually able to just actually start to turn the tide and just very slowly get better and better and better. And I had mentioned working with Dr. Pompa and such, and he it played such a crucial role, why I keep mentioning him, um, you know, in this whole thing and coaching me through a lot of these different strategies. I've learned so much from him. And, in, you know, cut... Two, two years later, and I was uh, almost a totally different person, not 100% well yet, but was like, you know, you know, functional. And I actually started working with uh, Dr. Pompa and his group of, you know, functional medicine doctors, doing some research for them and doing some, um, you know, some product development stuff and uh, some different things. And one thing that I, I had brought to him, actually, even before we started actually working together officially was, was, was the Kava. I mean, because he was actually coaching me during this time and he saw this massive thing. Like he was like, about to throw his hand. He was like seriously like, you know, distraught about this where we were because we couldn't get anywhere. And he saw what it did for me. And then I was like, hey, let's, you know, we should try this on some other people. He's like, yeah, we got to try it on my other clients. So whenever we started working together, I started, you know, talking to the other clients and we started providing them with the means of trying it themselves on their, on their, on their own dime, you know, to, to try to do this. And I sort of was just giving them my experience, you know, and sort of, uh, you know, people who were desperate in the same way. And we just saw so many amazing results with it. And I had talked to so many people literally in the hundreds, you know, uh, or more than that, you know, even since then that I've personally talked to and seen people implement it for their own purposes to transition off of benzodiazepines, you know, or to use as a safe nootropic if they're just like a biohacker, they're just someone, you know, that's like trying to hack sleep. We have like an army of doctors in our group here, you know, that all have aura rings, you know, that are all trying this product and and they see the results on deep sleep too, because it enhances deep sleep. Um, As where benzodiazepine will put you to sleep, but it'll mess up REM sleep. So it's, it's like all these amazing, you know, things so as as you well know, if you can improve if you can improve your REM cycles, you can improve just about everything, at least to some degree, you know. And like the daytime strains, they still will help with REM sleep, even though they don't, you know, put you to sleep. If it's in your system, like you know, I tended to get better sleep that night, lead to a good sleep kind of thing. So the main benefits that I was seeing are all the main ones. So you've got the anti-anxiety effects, the anti-convulsant effects that I was seeing from it. Uh, personally, the antidepressant effects that I was seeing from it. The, you know, the nootropic effects, which were huge. And then as I started, I mean, I've read every piece of, you know, literature available ever done on Kava, you know, from every word. <laughs> Sounds like it. And, um, you know, it's been, you know, your different forms of Kava in, you know, you know traditional forms too, you know, et cetera, have been studied for many more applications. I actually used it, some other side benefits. While I, I had mentioned that I was doing a lot of fasting and keto adaptation. And for someone who's as sick as me, it was hard to adapt it was actually the most effective like supplement for, for helping and assisting keto adaptation because it's a big appetite suppressant, first of all. And secondly, as I started to dig into the literature, there are several studies that have come out in the last few years um, establishing mechanisms through which kava enhances a process called autophagy in the body by activating this pathway called AMPK and suppressing mTOR. So basically activating 
your body into a recycle mode where it recycles its own body fat and bad tissues for, for energy to survive what? and taking you out of that growth mode. And again, this is actually leading to one of the other things that kava has been thoroughly studied for and where most of the excitement is right now in the ethnobotanical sort of scientific world is some studies, not making any claims here, just, just talking about the studies, is studies you know, with, with kava and cancer and metabolic disorders. There are certain people in the scientific community who I'm, I'm, I'm spoken to who believe that you know, kava might be a more powerful aid, supportive aid, you know, as a preventative and, you know, tool in the whole cancer paradigm as cannabis, uh, yeah, you know, or maybe even more so. And this is actually, there's a lot of data behind this. And of course we need more and it's, it's just, you know, it's an interesting thing to talk about. I'm not saying that it's, you know, but, you know, we have mechanisms and in that topic, the, the interest of the scientific community was actually originally peaked back in the early 2000s it was just an observation that uh, you know, you know, you know, kava drinking, you know, countries where people were drinking kava, like a huge percentage of the population, like you know, some of these islands that were drinking kava on a regular basis and also using high amounts of tobacco had ridiculously low levels of lung cancer. Right? That was just kind of an interesting thing. And so, an epidemiological study was carried out where they looked at all of these countries in the South Pacific and they were trying to you know, create a correlation and look at, you know, you know, cancer incidences in comparison to kava consumption. And without fail, it was a direct inverse relationship between kava consumption and cancer incidences. As kava consumption went up, cancer incidences went down without exception across all eight countries that were studied. Wow, So, dude. so that was, it's, it's you know, and of, course it's, and of course it's epidemiological and stuff, but that piqued the interest of the scientific community. And so, Kava has actually since then been rigorously studied to establish mechanisms and look into this, even though you haven't, that it hasn't really penetrated into, yeah, into the world of, of, you know, but there's, um, it's actually one of the most studied herbs in the world. And a lot of these studies are looking at compounds uh, like certain kavalactones and other chalcones that, that might be responsible and linked to this, this supportive effect against processes in the body like this. So, you know, like a study came out that was, that was looking at a covalactone, one of the covalactones called the Yangonin, and, um, you know, showed that it was a power, powerful mTOR suppressor, AMPK activator, right? So, so again, you know, autophagy is how the body recycles and gets rid of old damaged cell components, which is what makes fasting so, so amazing because the body eats from itself when it stops eating externally. And, and which is why a lot of people, you know, Walter Longo's work and such has is, is, is created a lot of hype around fasting and such. And, and, and that's essentially what, uh, you know, Kava appears to be doing is assisting the body into that recycle mode and out of that growth mode, right? Uh, through various mechanisms, which is, Hence the appetite suppression, it's affecting hormones and that whole pathway and so on. You know, so all, all of these side benefits that were eventually flushed out whenever I really started to go down this rabbit hole of research too. And uh, it just had all these amazing effects. And I, rarely do you come across something with, that has this much perceived benefit with this little drawbacks, right? And which actually leads us to something that we absolutely have to touch on because I say this little drawbacks and a lot of people who have gone somewhat down the kava rabbit hole, have said, what about kava and liver function? Oh, right? I have heard that. Yeah, kava yeah. Kava and liver function. That it's, um, that it's hard on your liver or something like that. it's hard on your like liver, that. which is actually anyone researching kava. Actually, it's starting to change rapidly. It's about, it's closer to half and half now of the data that's, of the 
articles that are floating out there of people that are still under the old paradigm of saying that it's damaging to your liver and whatnot. And actually, probably, um, well, it requires a little explanation here. Those whole liver toxicity or liver, um, you know, dampening uh, claims all originated from a series of analysis that took place in Germany and Switzerland in the early 2000s, 2000 to 2002. And, you know, essentially, it, it all originated from one pharmaceutical company. I'm not going to, you know, I won't name the name. Uh, the uh, one who sells the most diazepam. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> it, it wasn't. It was, so it was European. Uh, yeah, but so it, it, it was one pharmaceutical company uh, and it was one pharmaceutical product. And all of these claims, this whole belief system that has just been pervasive around the world is just like stuck and just grown, grown, grown just sort of like a lot of the things that have stuck to cannabis, all literally comes from this one situation. And, uh, you know, so it was this one pharmaceutical company that was trying to create a drug out of kava because there, there started to be a big kava boom once people started to realize what it was in the West, like in the late 90s. And then pharma companies were, were racing to it. And this company was trying to make a drug out of it. They were going around and buying up kava material. And again, lack of, of understanding of, of indigenous, um, you, know, you know, concepts and things around... Uh, plant medicine and such. They were just trying to extract the drug like we were talking about. They were just looking. So they dug in the literature and they, they, and they um, you know, were looking for covalactones. Like we're going to get the covalactones out of there. And so they weren't paying any um, attention to like what uh, parts of the plant were being used and so on in most cases. And uh, this is what's, you know, what the, you know, the general, you know, perspective on this whole situation is. So they were going around and just buying uh, you know, you know, kava material from people uh, in in you know Vanuatu and other places, and just buying it and such. And the problem with that is, is that at that time when there was a big kava boom and kava became was starting to become more um, valuable, uh, there of course, like in anything, there were unscrupulous exporters and farmers in these islands that are that would want to sell everything. And just a fact about kava is that. Uh, the only consumable parts of the plant, all that drink and everything that we just talked about is all made out of the roots of the plant. So many plants out there in nature, rhubarb, for example, there are parts of the plant that you make a nice pie out of, right? And then other parts are very toxic, actually. You know, you can't consume them. There are many plants in nature, all, th all throughout nature, that you can consume certain parts of the plants and not others. So, so anyways, at this time, there were a lot of exporters in places like Vanuatu and other places that were that were selling their waste products, which are uh, above ground aerial parts of the plant, leaves and stems, because they contain covalactones, but they also contain plant defense alkaloids that are toxic to humans. And the indigenous people knew this long time ago, hundreds of years ago, you know, it, it figured out because they ate them and got sick, right? You know, and so they've known this and, you know, traditionally nobody consumes, you know, the, the, the you know, anything but the roots and the basal stump that just comes above the ground. But, you know, they were just looking for covalactones and such. And so that was the situation. So they basically ended up with a confounding situation where it's believed now that it was, it was totally a quality control issue, meaning that um, they either ended up with aerial parts and they were doing extraction methods with aggressive solvents that then concentrated those compounds that are not only questionable, but we know are toxic, at least, you know, to some degree. And on top of that, a lot of the exporters at this time were trying to increase their profits and the weight of their batches so they weren't dehydrating them. And like in most tropical plants, that means mold, which means mycotoxins. That's always my concern with something that's made from a root. Yeah. 
And no, then exactly, growing yeah. underground that's wet. Exactly. You know, it's one of the main issues with peanuts. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's just yeah. like you're harvesting something and out it's, of wet it's a soil. Big problem. Yeah. You you've got a tropical plant, you know, that's uh is full of water. I mean, you're gonna have mold and, and you're gonna have mycotoxins and so on. So, you know, between mycotoxins, between hidden aerial parts and these toxic alkaloids, and the other thing that um is important too is that there are you know, we mentioned that there are hundreds of cultivars of kava, you know. There's a certain class of kava that are known as by the indigenous people of Vanuatu and these other places as daily drinkers. So these are basically the cultivars of kava that the indigenous people have selected for over thousands of years for characteristics that are, that are tolerable daily. And whenever we look at them scientifically, we find that they actually knew what they were doing because they actually all fit these, these daily drink kavas, also known as noble kavas. That's sort of a classification term for a class of cultivars that meet a certain chemical profile, you know, a certain composition profile that have a certain ratio type of cavalactones that have um, very low amounts of certain other constituents that are hard to digest or actually, you know, most of these noble kava varieties have none at all. Uh, these other compounds called flavocavines, these little chalcones that, uh, that are more suspect. We don't know that they're toxic like the, like the, like the alkaloids in the aerial parts of the plant. The alkaloid that's, that we know is toxic is called pipermethystine. You know, so there's, there's some questionable things. We know that they can cause negative symptoms, these non-noble kavas, right? In a lot of people, which is why they don't drink them daily, is that they can cause stomach ache. They can cause, they're very hard to process sometimes. They can actually cause a little bit of a, of a hangover, not because of the effects on the brain with the cavalactones, but because of these other compounds that are in it, you know? Which is why they've selected for characteristics to tone down and, and have this class of cultivars over thousands of years, you know, that they can drink daily. And then some of these other kavas that are more aggressive, they, they use only acutely for acute medicinal things because they can kick even harder than, than some of the noble kavas, you know. But in this situation, less is, is, is usually more. Smooth is the name of the game with consistent kava use. But anyways, all of these things combined, all these, these quality control issues combined in the situation in Germany, they paid no... They paid no never mind to assessing for strain and it especially trying to get these kavas that the indigenous people know are safe because they've been drinking them for 3,000 years every single day with virtually no reports of any instances of problems, especially on any kind of uh, a level that's worth writing home about, right? You know, any, anything on an epidemic level, you know, associated with these daily drink kavas. You know, so anyways, you know, they didn't pay any never mind to these things. And so it was, uh, you know, between, you know, you know, toxic aerial parts through low quality, you know, cob material, non-noble varieties. So just other kava strains that aren't even ever consumed or rarely consumed by indigenous peoples, mold, mycotoxins and other, you know, forms of contamination. And then extraction with solvents that's taking the plant out of its context and basically turning it into a drug by isolating. It's like taking the caffeine out of coffee and putting it into a pill. Some people go to the ER off of that, but very few people will go to the ER off of drinking coffee, you know? Right, right. You know? So it's, it's that kind of a thing. Like you can't take caffeine out of coffee and call it coffee. You can't buy a caffeine pill and call it coffee, right? The, you know, some of these solvent extracts, you can't call them kava because kava is this drink, this full spectrum drink that they've been drinking safely for very, very many years. So basically how this was all vetted out was there was this huge investigation, both in the scientific community and brought before the, the German administrative courts and such, trying to figure out this enigma, like how, how have these people, because it just didn't make sense, didn't make sense to scientists, researchers, it didn't make sense to, to, to anybody because here's a drink that's been drank daily 
for 3,000 years with no problems. One pharma company comes off, makes an extract, hurts even, you know, like 20 to 50 people or, you know, total in, in the whole history or such. Uh, and now, you know, kava causes liver failure or it's toxic and these kind of things, you know. And which is actually why the FDA never banned it. Because following that situation, because they're a pharma company, they, they got a lot of press around it. So a lot of attention. They created this huge buzz about it, you know, over in Germany. And several countries across the world banned kava all at once. You know, you had, you know, your Germany did it, Australia did it, you know, you know, Canada did it. There are several places that actually banned it, not because of its like addictive nature or anything like that, but because of these potentially damaging effects in the liver. So there's this freak out, like regulatory agencies oftentimes can end up in. But FDA never banned it because they sort of realized like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. But they did issue a disclaimer like, yeah, you may want to be careful. But, 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 but they even never banned it. And actually the majority of countries never did. It was just sort of one of those things where no one knew for sure. Indigenous peoples knew that, that, that something had run amok, you know. But uh, anyways, it, it had been investigated over literally like the last 15 to 20 years. So, so much, you know, literature had been done. And even since then, traditional preparations of kava have never produced any cytotoxicity, you know, any hepatotoxicity, they call it, you know, liver toxicity whatsoever in cell cultures. When you talk about traditional preparations of noble kava varieties, Right. Not, uh, not isolates of certain things and so on. That has never been reproduced. So that was one of those things, right? So, you know, so basically, it, it had been vetted out like this for, for many years. And, and you know, eventually, you know, a few years ago, around 2015, the World Health Organization finally issued you know, a statement after assessing this whole thing. Like, you know, and the statement literally was, was quoted, and um, I believe we have it on our website, but uh, you know, that, you know, kava has been used, has a, at least a 1500 year history of use in most of these islands, you know, and uh, traditional preparations of kava are seen at, are, are relatively safe for human consumption or are safe for human consumption if you do these certain things, right? That this was most likely absolutely a quality control issue. And actually it's gone so far now to the point that they're, you know, World Health Organization and the Codex Alimentarius Committee, which is, you know, works alongside them to sort of set world quality standards, uh, is in the midst of looking at uh, adopting a uh, you know a you know world quality standard for kava to to you know to differentiate these two things. FDA is, is uh, you know is is looking at this too because it's it's one of those things that's just it's ridiculous. It's it's just like the whole you know marijuana hemp thing. Just we all know that hemp that CBD is not the same thing as as marijuana, but yet it, it takes a while for legislators to you know to to figure this out and and make these distinctions right. It's like the difference between noble traditional kava preparations and solvent extracts of, of some of these aggressive varieties, these, these funky varieties, is as different as marijuana to CBD, you know? Right, it's, right. It's, it's so different. When you, were st- when you were starting to explore the different strains and preparations and stuff, did you actually have to physically go travel to these different islands in the South Pacific or were you ordering off janky little websites or... A private supplier on Etsy, <laughs> like that. yeah, you know. So it was how, one of those. How things are you finding that, it when it wasn't a capsule from Whole Foods? Yeah, exactly. That, so that we had to vet nothing. these things out, and a lot of this thing, like this information, comes from you know, you know, boots on the ground, especially through you know friends of mine who I've uh, you know gotten to know very well, who have actually spent years on the ground there, you know, and can make like in all of these and have developed deep relationships with uh, you know people in in um, in Vanuatu and Fiji and. Uh, you know, you, you know, people who, who we're now, you know, sourcing with and sourcing from, you know, who have deep relationships and have, 
you know, supply chains where there's, there's rigorous quality control of only growing individual strains, not a hodgepodge of a lot of different strains together, which is actually what most kava is. Right, that's what we were talking about that earlier with the stuff I was buying. You're like, yeah, "Yeah, it's maybe 2% of the noble So most of those, even those not so good... Well, you know, let's talk about this first real quick because we still haven't really addressed what makes kava not as good whenever you extract it like they extract it in a capsule. All of those capsule products are mostly extracted with solvents like alcohol. Hexane or... Some chemical solvents, worst, but... Right? Yeah, yeah, okay, and yeah. acetone and such. But, yeah, yeah. But, you know, most of them out there are alcohol extracts. Okay. Some CO2 extracts too. CO2 and, and alcohol extractions are good for some plants if they have one or two active compounds or most active compounds or if they're mostly alcohol soluble or whatnot. But for kava, not so good at all, right? It, it kills basically all the effects whenever oh, you do it. Oh, shit. And the reason is because it only grabs certain things and it leaves a whole host of others. So you've totally... You've totally divorced the whole, you know, the whole, um, you know, your living system, right? That we were talking about earlier. So now the system, they can't all work together anymore. Now you've just taken a couple guys out, a couple little active compounds out. You know, this is true of a lot of herbs like chaga, for example. I, I For years, I've been boiling, you know, these huge crock pots of chaga. And then uh, my friend Daniel Vitalis, who's really into medicinal mushrooms, yeah. he's like, that's great, good for you, but you're missing the oil, was it the oil soluble? Or the alcohol soluble oh, yeah, portion. Alcohol yeah. soluble. He's like, yeah, I mean, it's not going to hurt you, but you're you're missing a lot of the... Missing a lot of the goodies there. Yeah. yeah. And they so do I'm dual like, extractions. Ah, man. And so I, I think what he does just at home is he'll do a water extract, then take the yeah. chunks that are left over and then soak them forever in alcohol. Oh, exactly. And, yeah, they'll yeah. do an alcohol. They'll do a dual extraction. Right. So they'll do two, extract it in two ways. So you get, and then they'll mix it together. Yeah. They'll dry it into all one powder and concentrate it and so on. Yeah. yeah. So if you're doing, so it's not the, the kava then is not water soluble. But if you use other solvents to get it out, you ruin it. So what's the <laughs> exactly yeah? What's the solution that you arrive so at to get all the all the chronic you, you stuff to, out without ruining it? Yeah, you know, it. so you have to extract it in some way that's mimicking its, uh, you know, you the natural preparation, right? Right. And so using what you described as kind of having the little nut milk bag type, yeah, it's exactly cloth and you know so a human being wringing it out. You have to pull them out. out either you know through some form of pressure or, or so on, or through a method that's using. That's, that's using water to help flush them out, but then also using pressure. So you're not damaging anything. You're not just grabbing one thing that you're, that you're releasing them from the encased plant material in their full sort of matrix or their plant, you know, covalactone complex, right? As, as we call it, you know, and, and you know, to where that, that everything is there. And that's, uh, you know, that's difficult to do because uh, a lot of methods, if you want to put it into a product that's ready to go, it's uh, it's hard to do that without damaging the constituents. Like using pressure usually involves high heat, usually involves grinding these things that pull oxygen down into the oils and so on. So is this is this why seed oils typically suck? Because there's a fri- yep. you know there's friction in a press, right? Exactly. If you're if you're using pressure, there's friction in that which creates heat. even most cold, cold quote unquote cold press methods today. Right, you go to the you know to the store and you see cold pressed seed oil and so on and so forth. And a lot of these companies, they're they're totally damaged rancid oils. They call cold pressed like 110 degrees or more, oh, and where wow. you start to get damaged, right? especially these polyunsaturated fats and so on. If you're talking about seed oils, so you you've got to be able to integrate some method that is like literally down in the 90, you know, like uh, you know 80 something degrees mark, and that doesn't use the the, the the traditional sort of expeller press type of thing where you're where you're grinding, which pulls oxygen down into the oil because a lot of these oils are very fragile. They'll oxidize. And so you turn a medicine or a medicinal food into right. a, 
an inflammatory nightmare, you know, with like with seed oils, you know. And, you know, this is, was something that is a factor too when you talk about, because the, the cobalactone complex, like I said, is an oil complex, you know, so you've got that, you know. So there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot there. But, um, you know, so we got to a point, you know, basically where we had to, well, you know, just to finish up on the liver toxicity thing real yeah. quick. You know, you know, so basically, you know, there's this process or this movement to make these very clear distinctions, uh, you know, now in, you know, real kava, like the stuff that's actually consumed and highly prized and like other material that's out there and stuff too. And these, um, you, you know, one of the problems too with like sourcing kava and like I was saying with, with, with most of the products that were out there, you, most of the products that are even these solvent extracts that end up really weak, um, actually are coming from kava that may not even be so safe because we have personally tested almost every kava product out there on the market or the sources of all them because I've met most of the suppliers. There's really five or six large-scale exporters in Vanuatu and they supply most of the world's kava because it's the biggest exporter in the world. Are the indigenous peoples where this is being harvested stoked? Are they getting a good deal? I'm kind of just... Taking a sidetrack here, is it helping those communities because they're like, "Whoa, shit! This stuff's really easy to grow, and we know how to do it right." And now yeah. there's this demand for it. Well, is there's it- there's sort of a there's these two camps, right? There's there's camps of of people that so one reason why everyone doesn't just grow noble kava is because these these more wild like kavas that are not as toned down and not as um as smooth. They, it's in a class of kava called called two days. So they're basically closer to wild kavas, more aggressive and such. And there may be, you know, an application, we're not even saying that we know that they're toxic, but we know that in many cases they can cause negative symptoms, bad for kava's reputation, you know? So you just have to know what you're getting. We just want people to be able to know whether you're getting noble kava or not. But, you know, in, in the islands, you know, so two day kava, non-noble kavas grow much faster. So you can increase your yields drastically by growing these sort of not as smooth. Yeah, exactly. Got it. You know, so, so by growing some of these other varieties of kava, you can increase your yields drastically. So they're planting a lot of these things, certain farmers, because they're, you know, they're trying to make money. And if there's a demand for it, they do it. But there is a portion of the community in these places that knows that long-term, this is bad for kava's reputation because you create negative symptoms. It further hurts an already damaged reputation that is just now finally getting its its second day, right? Getting its second chance. And a lot of, of the of the communities in this in these islands are saying, no, we have to implement these quality control measures because it's gonna hurt Kava's reputation again. When those Kava bans happened originally, this hurt the economies in those islands. Right. You know, that is basically like their main export. One of their main exports in wow, Vanuatu is these Kava. are tiny yeah. islands too. Yeah. Right? And so it's a big part of their culture and big part of their um of their whole economic situation down there. Are the too. farmers incentivized to grow the the really, you know, the safe and most effective noble Those strains? Are the, can can yeah. they get more money for that than the swag two day stuff that well, you can just pop up more? Up more until bulk now, weight out? up until now, since there hasn't been so after this whole thing happened with the with the with the stuff in Europe and stuff, Vanuatu actually acted very quickly and they passed what's called the Kava Act of 2002 in their country, which actually restricted the export of all non-noble Kava varieties and aerial parts and and all of these things. But there wasn't much policing of it and hasn't been. It's like, how do you police it? There are all these farmers and people go to them. And it it, it restricted the export of it if someone didn't ask for it. If someone asked for other strains, right, then you could export those. But you couldn't do it unknowingly and, and tell them that it's noble and such. Because then they go around saying it's noble and then people... 
can possibly have side effects. And then that hurts all of Kava's reputation. Like, you know, they wanted it to be separated. So it's like, okay, if you have side effects, that's not all Kava that the side effects, it's like, that's those Kavas, right? Could you take some Kava seeds and go grow them in Florida or... No, yeah, like- no, not not uh, <laughs> not without some sort of serious uh, strategy because it takes four years minimum to secure to to grow a kava plant into maturity and preferably if you can grow it the longer the better. Are they renewable? Can you? Oh no, because you're taking the roots. So once you pull it, it's, you're taking it's gone. the roots and kava piper methysticum is actually cultivated kava that's been, you know, you know, domesticated to some degree to tone down to where humans can consume it regularly and such. So these noble varieties can't they don't produce seeds anymore so it's wild progenitor is actually a totally different species called piper weshmanii and it does produce seeds but it is virtually unconsumable i mean it can make you violently sick which is actually why the indigenous peoples they discovered wild kava this is how we think the story went they they discovered wild kava they drank it got all these good effects but also got very sick by drinking it constantly and it was so hard on their system that they started selecting for the more toned down, you know, expressions of the plant and over many generations selecting for the characteristics that they wanted to replanting, replanting, replanting until finally they ended up with these very, very dialed in strains that you could consume regularly. And those are what we call noble kavas today. Wow, that's so interesting. I love this And so this each stuff. island though has a little bit different effect. So we talk about some of the more daytime, some of the more nighttime. That's because each island over those millennia or over those hundreds of years or thousands selected for the characteristics that they sought out most or wanted the most. Like if they wanted it for social gatherings, they'd select for those characteristics. Like in Tonga, that's the case. So in Tonga, they have more sort of euphoric, nootropic, socially enhancement kava. Um, even though all kava has those characteristics to some degree, they express that way more. So people go after Tongan varieties for that. And Vanuatu is sort of a wheelhouse. It's, it's really balanced around that kind of thing. And then some are more on the sedative side of things, you know? So it's really interesting at that, but they all ended up with these class because eventually it just happened in all these islands that they toned them down to a point where they have this class of kavas that you can consume regularly, you know? And actually, you know, once we, like I was saying earlier, once we analyze them under the microscope, we know that they lack these compounds that we know are questionable, right? These flavocavines, and they certainly lack the compounds that we know are bad, like the plant alkaloids, the, the uh, you know, defense proteins. You know, so it was, you know, so that whole, um, you know, that whole situation where they, you know, yeah, so these islands, they, they have, individuals have like a monetary, like short-term incentive to, to grow these two-day varieties, even though it's prohibited by law, but a lot of them are still doing it. And now it's getting to a point where kava is enough of a commodity, enough of a valuable thing where it's, they're trying to put together and, and put into place more policing of a lot of these things. And because they know that people are going to want that because of the world quality standards and things and, and some of the standards that regulatory agencies are getting behind and everything uh, of all the things, all the quality things that I just named, that people are going to be demanding that and testing for it. So they're not going to be able to, you know, get away with doing that anymore if that's what they're engaged in right now. Sweet. So it's one of those things. Yeah. And so, that creates inevitably a win-win because the farmers that have integrity are doing it right are getting top dollar for exactly. the commodity that they're and, producing and, and look, exporting. It's like we don't even want to, we were talking about some of the cancer studies, some of the um, apoptotic effects outside of the autophagy inducing effects, apoptotic effects actually come from those compounds that we think are questionable, the flavocavines. So we know that they're actually quite toxic to cancer cells. The question is, is like, what are the dosages and are they toxic to human cells or not? And those are the ones that are in the non-noble varieties and such. And so 
which would mean like what the indigenous people said is like these could be useful for acute medicinal purposes, but dosage is, is, is key and such. So it, we're not even saying that there's not potentially an application for non-noble kava varieties, but it needs to be studied more and we need to know exactly. And we need to know because, you know, you know, the ones that we can, that we can say with a, a very good amount of, of, you know, confidence and especially where you know, regulatory agencies are heading with it now, that the noble kava varieties are the ones that, you know, you know, we're good with, right? And then we can explore these others too and see where they fit, like acute medicinal or what, to add that extra this or that for acute situations. But we need to know what we're getting, right? So we don't want to necessarily just ban all other ones. We need to, it needs to be studied more. We need to know more about it, you know? So when I'm walking around today, uh, Cameron, and I, saw, I walked by and saw your booth and I saw the roots and then I saw something on the bottle about kava. I was like, I love kava, but I know that I have not tapped into its full potential. There's something there and I get it and I intuitively sense it, but I've also known like, eh, I don't know what the right stuff is. And then whatever your tincture preparation was, I think I had a five times recommended dose because your guy was like, oh, here, have a teaspoon. I was like, keep it coming, bartender. Right. And I had quite a lot and I feel really good. Not at all sedated or, I mean, not like mood altering at all, but feeling really good and I haven't barely eaten anything today. So bring us up in the interest of time um, because I could go on about, I love the nuances and like the details of everything, but so that we can tie a bow on it relatively soon bring me up to the point where you're going, shit, I think I know how to make a really great best in show product here and bring it to market. What's the, what was the initial decision to do that, the discovery and maybe a, 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 a summarized version of the journey of your R&D to bring the product that I just had and love downstairs to market? Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, you know, we already touched on on a few of those things, right? As far as like, you know, going more towards using pressure and not solvents and those kind of things. And I and I knew that that was going to be the case. And when uh, we were, you know, originally testing these things out, and you know, Dr. Pompa and I, and we were, it, you know, you know, we knew that it's like that if if I was going to you know develop a kava product, that it had to be palatable for daily use. And if we were going to reach a lot of people, if we were going to reach the masses, if we we're going to reach you know, the average person with it to get these therapeutic effects. It had to be palatable and it had to be easy because the two sort of caveats or the two, you know, difficulties, two main deterrents of traditional kava are the preparation, number one, because it takes like 30 minutes to prepare this stuff and it's really messy. And then the taste, you know, and the taste, because you end up with something that looks very much like muddy water and it it doesn't taste like great, you know, and some people think it's quite nasty but the thing is, is that people love the effects so much, they go to it. But the cumulative effects that we were talking about, a lot of times they taste it once and they don't drink it long enough to, to, to get to that month where they're like, oh, that's what it is, right? And so a lot of times they don't even give it enough of a chance. And even if they do love it, especially if they're sick or challenged and, and if they have gastrointestinal stuff, it's like, you know, you, you people don't necessarily, the average person doesn't necessarily like to, to drink that that dirty water with all of those plant pieces in it floating around in it. It's like sediment, you know, and it's like, you know, so I knew I really wanted to create something that captures the effects of, of traditional kava and something that's ready to use that, 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 you know, a person who is challenged can use or just a person who wants to go, you know, take it on the go, all that stuff, you know? Uh, you know, so we knew we had to do that. And, you know, so, you know, we experimented with a lot of different, uh, you know, 
you know, methodologies and stuff. And we've got a, a lot of people that we work with or, and I get my hands in there and I, you know, with, you know, you know, different extraction methods and stabilizing and all kinds of things. We've got some, some brilliant people on our team that, um, you know, help us in, in uh, product development too. But it was, it was a team effort for, for everybody involved. And I sort of put all the pieces together, you know, so we developed a method that involves, you know, pressure at very, very low temperatures you know, you know, less than 90 degrees, no grinding in it whatsoever. So no oxygen is being pulled into the oil. And then we process it with a type of seed oil that doesn't get damaged during this process, you know, which is a sunflower seed oil. And, and the lecithin content acts as a carrier for the lactones. Because lactones oh, are lipid-like dope. compounds. Yeah, too. So wow, interesting. that's the thing. And a thing that I also discovered later on is that, you know, something else, another little, you know, tidbit is that uh, both MCT... And caffeine both intensify the effects of kava and increase the absorption quite rapidly. Really? That's because that's what, when I tried it and I, you told me that it was sunflower oil, I, I had the thought and I was going to ask you, oh, well, I wonder why you didn't use MCT because it's, it's a very neutral, good carrier oil. It, and the main reason was is because we're processing the seeds along with the process and MCT is already like ready to go. And we're, we're probably, uh. you know, eventually, I mean, I'm, I'm telling people that right now, we'll probably eventually have a product with MCT in it, but. You know, that's just the thing, especially like I've found that the pure caprylic acid, you know, like the, you know, the, those really good MCTs like seem to work stuff. very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, so a, a lot of those, you know, work, uh, you know, you know, very, very well. You, you don't necessarily want to take it with caffeine if you're taking it for anxiety though. And if you have, you know, <laughs> yeah. but if you're using it as a nootropic though, then definitely nootropic So stack. one could take your oils because also with the sunflower oil, you have uh, the emulsification properties of the some sunflower mm-hmm. lecithin in yeah, there, exactly. right? Yeah. So it could be a dope stack in a bulletproof style coffee. Absolutely, yeah. Hmm, that's very and interesting. It absolutely is. And that's what I use it for. We do all kinds of stacks and we're, yeah. you know, it's, it's amazing because it's an oil. You can actually put it in a bulletproof style coffee. You can put it in basically anything that you would put oils on. You can put it on salads. You know, you can put it on, you can have your cover oil on salads and stuff too. And, and what we found too is, is that after lab analysis, we, we run everything through HPLC like lab analysis. And we've gotten a very, very close comparable, what's called a chemotype. So that is like, it shows, it's like a six digit number sequence <clears throat> that shows you know, the ratios of all the primary covalactones. So that's like the fingerprint of, of what it's like traditionally. And then you compare it afterwards, you know, just to see if what you have has been denatured or not. Oh, so every, cool. every bit is run through that process. Wow. Along with, we rigorously test every batch that comes in, both before and after it comes into the States for both biological and industrial contaminants. So down to the subpart per billion level with heavy metals, with pesticides, with all that stuff. And then through bacteria, because in some of these places where they grow without chemicals like Vanuatu, there's a biological contaminant. And a lot of the cob out there is contaminated not only with mycotoxins, but also bacteria like E. coli. We've found a lot of those Dude, I bet because they're they're using irrigation water where there's yeah. livestock. Well, they're using the, the creeks and streams and stuff like that where it's that. And then there's animals grazing on the land and right. they're crapping on everything and such. And uh you know, so not only do you have all these non-noble varieties and just sort of this thing is these large scale operations are just, uh, yeah, we've tested most of the kava out there and did not come even anywhere close to our quality standards. So, you know, you know, you know, purity and potency, right, are, are is just like my number one. Like I, I, I've been sick. Like my goal was to make the highest quality products possible and then let the price, you know, be what it needs to be. And then maybe try to, you know, make something that's economical that still meets the standards, you know, in the future or whatnot. But, you know, it, it, it's got to be clean. It's got to be safe. So everything is, is 100% certified noble kava. 
We've tested it, you know, to look at the chemotypes and such. Like I explained, we tested for everything, including mycotoxins, which no one is doing with kava, which is an extra expense, but I think that it's an extremely important one, you know, just to ensure that it's the cleanest kava product possible. And uh, yeah, and we have a few other products too that we're dealing with. You know, one of our, you know, guys who's our, our supplier, you know, one of our suppliers who we, we work with, who's a good friend of mine at this point, who we're in the process of, of developing uh, some, some shelf-stable drinks that are uh, oh, even rad. more potent. With the more sedative effects. Well, with all different because there'll be different strains, you know. So that's that's we like. That's we're in the midst of trying to do do. that. There, I just go right to the sedative. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the thing about this oil is that it has it has all the effects, the the effects profile, the depth of of traditional kava, but it's in a concentration and in a form that is for daily practical tonic use. So it's not too potent to where it's it can be distracting or anything like that. So you can take it any time of the day type of thing. Yeah, we were talking earlier about uh, Kratom or as some people refer to it that aren't woke, Kratom. And I love that compound. It's, I mean, and it's, it's a ground up leaf. I mean, it's minimally processed to my understanding. And it's great once in a while at the right dose. <laughs> <laughs> but if you take Kratom too often and too much, in my own subjective experience, it can make you feel really nauseous, groggy, kind of high, but not in a good way. Yeah. It's it's gnarly. And so I like it, but I, I yeah. always treat it. Well, I'm not always because I have made mistakes with Kratom, but I do. I'm, I'm much more conscious about it now that I realize right. at a certain, there's a certain tipping point there where you're like, oh God, this does not feel good. And it's not something I would recommend anyone do in a tonic exactly. capacity. And that's actually an interesting quick point there because a lot of times, a lot of these sort of, you know, legal compounds, plant compounds that, uh, that um, affect brain chemistry or affect mood in any way or such all get sort of lumped in together and you find them at head shops and stuff like that. Or yeah, like yeah. It. Like the, and, the, and, and that's the like, kava bar that has kratom and kava and da-da-da, you know. And, and a lot of these different things. And it's one of these things that, you know, first of all, we've talked about the quality issues. And any situation like that is most likely going to have a form of kava that doesn't represent all the things that I we, we just talked about. I get about. that sense, exactly, man. And that, that sucks because some, every once in a while I do pass by one of those little plant medicine bars and yeah. I'm like, oh God, I've never gone into one, but I think, oh man, I like kava. Maybe they have a really great brew and they're doing it right. But if it's got, you know, ox poop in it from freaking Sri Lanka or wherever. And it's just, it may be one of these strains or it, it could be not 100% root material and it could be one of those things that's not so good for your system to be consumed right. regularly, right? And the mycotoxin thing is a huge thing too, obviously, you know, but, but I mean, anyways, even if it was good kava, a lot of times, a lot of these get lumped in together and like things like kava and kratom are very different. Like kratom has its place. Like kratom is one of those, but it's not a tonic situation. Like kratom is one of those things great for... You know, people are using it to to taper off of opiates, just like you know, people are using kava for benzos and alcohol, and and kava can be good for for others too, helpful for others, but you know, probably the best for those two because it binds the same receptors. But but you know, you know, kratom is one of those more like acutely medicinal because there is some habituation there, you know, to some of it, um, you know. But you just have to, you know, you just have to use it in that in that context. You Agreed. use it too much, the addiction is not much worse than like coffee addiction, but it's still. Is still, you know, yeah. something that needs to be taken care of. Yeah. So, 
just some, you know, some quick differentiation. Well, I, appreciate, on that point. I appreciate that because I am yeah. an advocate for the use of plants for all types of different things, but some of them do need a little bit of a disclaimer. And Kurtan yeah. would definitely be one based on my experience. Right. It, it's it can be pretty hardcore. So that oil, though, so you know, yeah. like just on you know to finish that one point we were talking yeah. about before that is you know you know the oil was meant for tonic use to be tolerable, and we we chose for this first part. We only have one strain of it right now. We chose a strain. Uh, called Boragu, which is a very popular strain in Vanuatu that's very balanced, but it teeters more towards the daytime effect. So unless it's more of a calm focus, it's not going to put you to sleep. It offers a lot of those, those you know, so, you know, we, we talk about those things that uh, a lot of the, you know, the studies on kava and stuff, Boragus are generally known for their neuroprotective effects and all those effects uh, are there in Boragu uh, strains, but they just favor more of the nootropic kind of thing with the anxiety a relief and then still help with sleep later on, but don't put you to sleep, you know? Right. So what, what we want to do is have a, a whole class of different uh, strains in the oils and then, you know, working on these drinks that are even more powerful that bring like the full recreational kick. Boom. Right. That's what I'm talking about. That's, that's Recreation, what we're trying to do. good sleep. Safe recreational. There's yes, not a yes, lot of yes. compounds <laughs> yeah. that are safe and recreational. And if, if there's something available that people can gravitate towards, like either in the post addiction phase or as an alternative, right? You know, something that sure. you can get that relief without going into an altered state, without, you know, not being able to drive and having your faculties uh, muddled and med actually improves brain function at the same time. I mean, I, you know, there's so many reasons we could go on forever. I know we're out of time here, but why that, you know, a lot of the, this is really one of these hidden gems, you know. Well, it's not going to be hidden for long, my friend. And thank you for doing the tough work, the R&D, and being as obsessed about something as you are. And I mean that in the most positive sense because... And that's why I have people like you on the show. It's like, I know when I talk to someone, I'm like, okay, they're doing it right. And I just... It's an intuitive thing. And I just know, okay, I want to help get the word out because I like to alleviate suffering in the world. And it takes someone who's dedicated to finding you know, the power of these type of compounds uh, that nature or God or creation has gifted to mankind. But it takes a responsible and integrous and intelligent steward in order to bring that to the public in a safe way. And my job is to be like, hey, here's a platform, man. A few tens of thousands of people are going to now hear you, try your stuff, or, or at least be educated about kava in general. And maybe they start a company and they do it a different way that's also integrous and whatever. It's like, everyone wins. So I appreciate your dedication and I appreciate the deep dive. Yeah, I've got man. one one closing question for you real quick. You've taught me a lot about your um, overcoming the struggles you've had, which is really inspiring and educational because there were so many lessons baked in there. And of course, everything I think I would ever need to know about Kava. Who have been three teachers or teachings generally in your life that you might point our listeners to to go learn from? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's an interesting one. That's my gotcha question at the end yeah, of every show. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, I wish I would have had time to think about this. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to say Dr. Pompa for one, because right on. he's such a close friend of mine and I wouldn't be doing any of this if it weren't for him. He inspired me and he was sort of that sort of, that that mentor catalyst. He was he was one of those and he's involved in this project and stuff too. And, uh, you know, I he, he's he's such an, uh, an amazing guy and he's changed so many lives and stuff too. You know, okay, so there's one. Uh, you know, number two, so what was the question again? People have inspired People me. that have inspired or influenced you and your life's work. So I got to say, you know, this is, this is an easy one, but I got to say my parents and maybe we can count both of them as one if you want to or whatnot. But like, I like that. my parents are the, 
they are one of the sole reasons why I'm still alive today and a good support system. And the re- I, I had a, a healthy reference point to fall back on when my life fell into total chaos. And, uh, you know, you, not everybody has that. I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for that, you know, and them, uh, you know, for sure. And um, the third one, uh, let's see, gosh, there's so many researchers, scientists, you know, yeah, you know, we, it could we, be, it could be anyone inspirational. It doesn't have to be within the health field or any of that. Oh, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a random weird one out at you. Good. I was hoping for that. That's Maybe why not so random. That's why I didn't let you off the hook. But because I love everything, these. you know, we could say like we could dive into the specifics of like I learned specific things from or like plant medicine or this or that or whatever. But but I think our philosophies are where everything sort of emanates from. You know, whenever I was sick and you know going through a, a huge perceptual shift, I, I found a lot of comfort listening to to Alan Watts lectures. Oh, beautiful! You know, beautiful stuff. I mean, Great. it's one of those things that's it's very you know. I mean, it's it's very just you know, you know, basic stuff, but it's, well, not necessarily basic, but just, just very, you know, philosophical type of very introspective type thinking about oneself and, and more on the, on the sort of spiritual side of things from a broad perspective. And, uh, you know, th- those were, in, you know, influential on me. And I always really, really enjoyed it because my philosophies have guided me. And we talked about different things like maybe psychedelic experience that have opened doors, but that whole process of perspective shift was huge for me. And, and, and people, like the three people I just named or four people I just named were, were pivotal and, uh, in my massive perspective shift. And I really think that that's what the world needs so much today is perspective, right? Because so much of it have lost it. It's been beat out of us or we've at, it's atrophied. And we really need real, real perspective as to how valuable life really is, right? And that it's absolutely worth you know, you know, dedicating yourself to try to make it the best human experience as humanly possible for yourself and everybody else around you. Hot damn. Drop the so. mic. Where can people find you on social media and a website? Right. So, you know, you can find me, you know, my personal account, Cameron George, obviously, but uh, Noble Roots Kava is our Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you know, so we're on both those uh, platforms. And um, yeah, you know, noblerootskava.com if, if you want to look at that stuff. And uh, we're in the process of, of you know, you're working to have a full informational website that has nothing to do with our, our specific product just as far as Kava advocacy. That's not, that's not up yet, but you, but, but you, you can stay tuned, uh, you know, for that because I, I, I'll reference that once we, you know, get that whole thing pulled together because we want people to be able to go and educate themselves on this amazing plant too. Awesome, so. man. Love it, dude. Thank you so much for joining yeah, me. Yeah, man. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. What a freaking journey, right? This kid Cameron has been through hell and has lived to tell the tale for which I am ever grateful. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. If you ever hear this, Cameron, dude, thank you so much for the great conversation. I really enjoyed meeting you. Uh, I had no idea when we sat down, this was going to be such a deep and inspiring journey. So thank you for surviving (laughs) the trials and tribulations. Thank you for making such a dope product. I love the Noble Roots Kava. If you guys want to check it out, you can go to noblerootskava.com, enter the code Luke20 and save 20% off. You know, when I have show, uh, you know, guests on the show and they have a product, I always milk them for a discount for you guys. So you can enjoy that. Thanks to Cameron. He's happy to get new customers. I'm happy to uh, make my commission on sales and also... I'm happy for you to get your hands on some kava because it's dope. And if you're someone who's using the pharmaceutical versions of this, um, as Cameron was, this could really help you. So very good stuff all around. 
Then I want to thank Organifi, Beekeepers Naturals, and of course, Blue Blocks. You can find them and for that matter, Noble Roots Kava over at lukestory.com forward slash store. If you want to have your questions answered on the show, as I will be doing this Friday for a very special solo Q&A show, you can join the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. Just request to join. We'll let you in and we are going to party. So this Friday, I'm going to take the best questions from the group and I'm going to drop a solo show. I've been getting requests for this for three years and I've just been, I don't know, I think overwhelmed with everything going on and the production of the regular Tuesday show. There's just been hard for me to pull it together. But I committed to myself in 2019 that I would drop at least one solo show. My goal was to do like a couple of months. So we'll see how that goes if this one goes well. Um, but I, you know, I really want to have the opportunity to answer people's questions and, um, you know, follow up on some of the conversations that ensue as a result of these regular episodes. So it's likely that after you heard this interview with Cameron, you might have some questions of your own. Well, you can join the Facebook group, post them. And if I or another outstanding, brilliant member of the group don't answer your question via text in the group, they might just end up on the show. So join that Facebook group and we will all hang out in there. And then I've got a couple events coming up. Of course, I'll be at Rama Fest in Majorca, Spain, July 19th through 21st. I'm super pumped on that. Oh my God, going to Spain, dude. What a great summer. And uh, July 22nd, I'll be presenting my very own workshop, The High Love Experience. You may have heard a couple episodes um, from the lecture portion of that workshop on the show. I did one from New York City and also one from Venice uh, over the course of the past year. Well, that's the workshop I'll be doing in Spain. I can't wait. Oh my God, it's going to be such a dope trip. And make sure you follow me on Instagram because I'll be posting stuff, doing stories and lives and all kinds of junk while I'm gone. It's just going to be insane. You can follow me on Insta at Luke Story. Then I'll be going over to uh, London for the Health Optimization Summit, September 14th and 15th with Dave Asprey, John Gray, tons of huge health and biohacking experts. Um, you might have heard a little bit about that in my recent episode with Tim Gray, who's the founder. Uh, he's managed to get the Bulletproof Upgrade Labs folks and the Paleo FX folks together to join forces to create the Health Optimization Summit, September 14th and 15th. So I'm really excited about that. So many of the former guests of the show are fellow speakers with me at that event. And I'm also going to be recording tons of new shows while I'm there, of course. So that's what's up. If you want to come hang out with me at some events, you can find those at lukestory.com forward slash events. And then again, the store is lukestory.com forward slash store. I want to thank you for listening. Share this episode with a friend. Uh, it's a great way to spread alternative information and um, help to get some of us, perhaps, if we're lucky, off the teat of Big Pharma. I love you so much. I'll see you next week. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.